many of you guys have never heard Todd Bentley before? How many of you guys? Wow, geez, about a third of the room. Man, you guys are in for an Ohio Kingdom encounter, I think. So you brought the whole company here. This is good. Boy, she was just a little baby last time you were here with those cheeks that just hung. So it's good to see she kept the cheeks. She's gotten taller. Well, good. We are glad you guys are here. And, you know, we're just going to go ahead and jump into it. So, hey, Todd, before you close, give the mic back to me. I forgot to talk to you about that. And so we'll... Uh, before you close out, I don't know what you're going to do, but uh, let's just give Todd as much time as possible. So, well, I saw first Todd. I first saw Todd back in Lakeland, 2008, and so my family and I drove. Uh, I think it was 20, 22 hours in the car from Michigan down to Florida. Which, if you look at the conversion maps in the back of your Bible, 20 hours in the car with kids is equal to 40 years in the desert. It's actually kind of weird how that works out. But we made it down there, and we, uh, boy, our, our lives were never the same. It was just awesome. And so I'm not typically a feeler, but I remember when Todd was about 20 feet away from us when he was praying for people, I just began to feel electricity all around me. And I thought, man, this is, this is next level. This is awesome. So it's really an honor to have Todd here. And so I'm just asking you guys to open up your hearts and let's give Todd a Columbus welcome. Yeah, sure. Wow. Come on. Give Jesus a mighty shout. He's worthy, he's worthy. Look at this, I got, I think the last time they said this was like a walker or something, you know, somebody got healed. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. I got my family here, my lovely wife, Jessa. Go ahead and just wave at the people, it's my lovely wife. Our baby girl, Paris, is running around somewhere, two and a half years old, almost three. And uh, we're expecting, you know, uh, I think this is going to be, what, seven months almost. We're expecting uh, Jocelyn Rain coming into the world. And here comes uh, one of our interns in baby Paris right now. So I want to just say, thank God we can have our family with us because Zion is so generous to be able to accommodate our team. Ryan Worrell's working the cameras tonight because we're live on FreshFire.tv. We're live on Facebook. You want to share the broadcast. And then I want to just kind of give a real shout out real quick to uh, my assistant. Leslie Moss is here tonight. Say hi to Leslie, everybody. She runs the book tables. My executive assistant, slash, uh, you know, help take care of baby Paris. And uh, two people just for that job, if you've ever had any two-year-olds. But uh, great to have my family with me here. Be back in Ohio, kicking off Ohio Blaze. We're very excited about what God's going to do this weekend. Wednesday night, I'll be out in the Cardington area, uh, Upper Room Ministries. Pastor Mark Guggins will do a Wednesday night. And then I'm up to Stryker, wherever that might be, Ohio somewhere at the Emerging Apostolic Hub that's up there in Stryker, Ohio. And uh, pray that we don't get snowed in in the coming days, uh, though that could be the will of God for many of you. But, uh, and then we'll have our break for Christmas, and no snow for me. I'm heading to Florida, hallelujah, joining all the snowbirds, and uh, going to have Disney, you know, Christmas. I didn't even put up the Christmas tree this year. I said, forget it. We're not even going to be home. We're going to go to uh, Disneyland and have Christmas there. So praise God. And uh, all the sunny weather there in Florida. But we're very excited about being back. I think it's been a couple of years. Good to see you, Mary. And uh, love the whole team here and uh, what God's doing. Uh, tomorrow morning, I'll be here, I think, 10 o'clock. And, uh, you know, revival doesn't usually happen before 10. So, but 
we're going to have a move of God in the morning. And I was praying about it already, knowing I have a service tonight, tomorrow morning. What are we going to do? I don't usually do morning type meetings, but we're going to focus on the ministry of healing and miracles and signs and wonders, impartation, and just really going after it tomorrow morning. Not that we won't go after it tonight, but uh, I thought I would do a little bit more training and equipping and impartation on the ministry of miracles and healing. We've learned a few things over the years. And then Saturday night will just be open heaven and revival glory and breakthrough. And Sunday morning we'll be here. And then Sunday night, I think we'll be at the graduation for the school in Pickerington. Is that right? Pickerington, Pastor Josh, good to see you in the house. Somebody said, you have an amazing memory. I said, no, it's just the Holy Ghost. And uh, really, when I build relationships and connect with people that become family and kingdom like I have here over the years, uh, you know, you just don't forget those kind of things. And so I really do consider this a home away from home. And I think every time I come to Columbus, my wife says, it's so beautiful. If we were going to have a second home, we should have it in Columbus. And I said, well, let's pray about that because I might want to have a second home in like Hawaii or somewhere like that. But she really does love the city. And I think it was all the shops. And, uh, you know, we got out today and had some amazing uh, grilled cheese sandwiches. You know, they do up to 12 cheeses if you've ever been to Melts. And uh, I, I dared to not take the man versus food challenge uh, because they said you could get up to 12 cheeses on three slices of bread. And I thought, I don't even think I would move if I tried to eat a 12 cheese grilled cheese. But I did have one of the best grilled cheeses today. So, uh, But my wife saw all the shops in the mall, and uh, she's like, man, I love Columbus. And I said, are you sure it's the city, babe, or is it just all the shops? Uh, you know, and of course, when it's holiday time, and uh, I said, you know, you're not supposed to be buying all these things for you and uh, baby Paris and everything else that you buy because Christmas is coming, you know, and and uh, she says, I know, I know. And I said, well, you're going to have nothing left to buy me or anybody else for Christmas because you're always, you know, buying whatever you need to buy in the moment to spontaneous shopper. And when you have a best friend like Leslie, uh, they both have a shopping addiction. You know, they're shopping already today, planning tomorrow, into next week. And I, I was like, help me, Jesus. I need to sell some more books or something. But honestly, um, if you're joining us live, go ahead and share. And uh, we're here in the Powell, I guess. I always call it Columbus, but for me, it's the, the greater area. And how many, again, have never heard me preach or minister? Just go ahead and wave and just let me know that you're here. Praise God. Uh, wave if you're not here. We're going to have a good weekend. And, and, and I'm feeling a little drunk right now, too. And that's a good thing in the Holy Ghost, just to clarify. You know, there's no high like the most high. We were praying and rebuking the spirit of addiction. <laughs> but, you know, the, the presence of God, how about that? The kingdom of God. How about doing the works of the kingdom or the gospel? That can be an addiction too, and uh, the right kind. But I'm a drinker, Holy Ghost drinker. And uh, I hope we do a lot of drinking tonight and this weekend and get as full of the new wine as we can. And uh, thank you, Holy Spirit, that we know that you're here already. But we say keep coming. Keep coming and let there be an atmosphere that would be heavy and weighty and overwhelming and full of revelation. We want to have an encounter with the sevenfold manifest work of the Holy Spirit. How about you? I've been thinking about the fullness of God, you know, and to know the Holy Spirit fully, you have to know the seven spirits of God. 
being one, you know, Holy Spirit, but with seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit as wisdom and revelation and knowledge and might and counsel. And uh, I was thinking about that. If you want to know the Holy Spirit in fullness, you want to know God in fullness, you have to learn how to work and partner together with the seven spirits of God. So if you're not working with the spirit of revelation or the spirit of wisdom or the spirit of knowledge, counsel, might, the fear of the Lord, you're not in the fullness of God. And I think the Lord's really showing the church how to work with the spirit of wisdom, how to work with the spirit of revelation, how to work with the spirit of knowledge, how to work with counsel and might and the fear of the Lord, the full manifest expression and work of the Holy Spirit. And we say, Lord, we want that. Yes and amen tonight and this weekend. We expect wisdom and revelation and knowledge and counsel and might because that's the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know about you, but outside of gathering in church for the community and accountability and, uh, you know, some good messages sometimes on Sunday, uh, I believe the purpose of the church, gatherings like this especially, are so that we can encounter and experience kingdom. I'm all about encountering the kingdom of God, and not just in miracle signs and wonders. I mean, as much as we love all the kingdom signs, casting out demons and all doing all the kingdom works, I want to encounter what it would be like if we were standing around the throne room. Like literally. And, and we believe that we're coming to the throne of grace and we're all around the throne and, you know, that Christ in you, the hope of glory. But what happens when that begins to happen in a real manifest reality, like heaven's realities begin to happen? We get so uncomfortable. Now, maybe not everybody in this room, but, you know, for the most part, when you start talking about believing God, how much of heaven can you have now? How much of Jesus that you can really have all as much of Jesus now as you want to? That we're talking about the realm of possibility. When you talk about dreaming about the kingdom, we're talking about the possibility of just how much you can receive and manifest. And so for me, I've gotten to the place in my kingdom mindset that my expectation is it shouldn't be any different here than it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. That's kind of what I, I pray for. As it would be in heaven, should I be there eternally? Knowing that heaven is here and it's at hand and it's in me and it's coming, my expectation is, God, can I have as much of heaven now and manifest and release as much of heaven now on earth? What is the kingdom of God as it is in heaven? If you can imagine what it would be like in heaven, not just the glory and the miracles, but what about if you were standing around the throne? What would it be like? Can you pray your kingdom come and have that show up too? Like the atmosphere of heaven. The lights, the colors, the sounds of heaven. What the glory would be like if you were in heaven in fullness. And know that heaven is coming. And you're entering into the kingdom of God. That should be a given. I never thought there would be a day I would have to preach on how heaven was literal and so's hell. That We'd never have to challenge the idea that heaven and hell and angels and demons. But there's people that don't even think there's hell anymore. It's just kind of a state of, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, if heaven is literal, so is that place that we call hell and whatever it might fit in your theology. But our focus tends to be on heaven. And if you're going to talk about and focus on heaven and entering into the kingdom of God, let's just imagine how much of heaven we can receive and manifest and release now. That's my message. I love the reality, the supernatural, and uh, that, that'll set you up for an encounter with kingdom. And I want to go as high as we can this weekend. 
And I want you to think in terms of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, praying the will of God on earth for Columbus or praying the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, that we can have our lives can be in a manifestation and an expression of what it would be like in heaven if we were there fully now. That's what Jesus taught about kingdom. And he talked about signs, wonders, miracles, casting out demons, kingdom signs. You know, the greatest being you must be born again, the new nature. That we're a new creation with a new nature. But really, God didn't just get me saved to get me to heaven. You know, fire insurance. He got me saved so he could get heaven in me. This transformation thing. Salvation, you know, once you settle the issue of salvation and you know your name's in the book of life, everything else that you live for is what? Heaven. Once you know that you've settled the issue of I know Jesus Christ and I'm born again and forgiven and my name's in the book and I'm baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, what do you get to do for the rest of eternity? You get to know God. You get to walk with God. And I've been talking about, you know, this is kind of my life's message, talking about the reality of the supernatural, just how much of heaven can we receive and manifest now. Well, that depends on your theological background, your hurt, your pain, your experience, We get uncomfortable sometimes with the idea that we can see angels, let alone see angels all the time. We get uncomfortable with talking about supernatural experiences like dreams or visions or heavenly experiences or, you know, throne room encounters or as some call them, third heaven type experiences. Is it possible? Is everything that's happening to you what they call a third heaven experience? And, you know, Paul had one and we believe that it's in the Bible, but it really only happened to him because he was getting the the message of the gospel, the revelation of the gospel uh, to the Gentiles and all that too, right? And, And, you know, that's the truth. And all the other supernatural things we read about in the Bible may be establishing a great truth that we know today. We call it the gospel. But if you're believing like I am, that the gifts never stopped with the apostles, that you're continuing on in your understanding of getting to experience the book of Acts, that you're continuing, that it didn't stop with the apostles, the gifts... I believe that God doesn't just do signs and wonders to validate the message or to bring the truth. We have the gospel. We have the doctrine. We don't need experiences to bring some kind of new doctrine or theology. That's not what it's about. But to experience your theology, if it doesn't lead to encounter, if what you know about who God is doesn't lead to you experiencing and so there's no, you know, the whole purpose talking about encounters or supernatural encounters isn't, isn't because God's trying to prove or validate or give some new message. It's all been done and established. We have it in the Bible. We have it in the scripture. But there's this whole place now where, where we get to say, well, God, your kingdom come. Let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray your kingdom come. And we might expect and talk about that in the idea of signs, wonders, miracles, casting out devils, you know, being born again. But you're born again to see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. You must be born again to see, perceive and understand and know uh, the kingdom. And then he went on to say, you must be born again so you can enter the kingdom of God. Now, seeing the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of God are very different. And I'm not waiting till I get the heaven and the idea of heaven in its fullness, streets that are golden, my mansion in heaven, though I believe in a literal heaven. I also believe the heavens of heavens cannot contain God. Is there a place God can dwell and really sit in heaven? Is the whole idea of what we think heaven, is it up, is it down? 
I think heaven is just so much bigger than you could imagine, even though I believe in heaven as a literal place. Or how about a new heaven and a new earth? A new Jerusalem. That this place will be transformed into a new heaven and a new earth. And, and that God's just going to dwell in our midst without a need for the sun or the moon or whatever. So I started really pushing the envelope in my expectation. That's a big word when you want to have more kingdom encounters. Expectation. That the idea that it's just all got to be sovereign or the prophetic has to be sovereign is, you know, kind of a given thing. When you talk about the prophetic or having visitations or encounters with God, we tend to think of the sovereignty. Well, God's not talking. He's not giving me anything. But what about, you know, we have access by faith. Like positioning ourselves to be available. Making a demand. And does the Father ever really deny? The Bible says He gives the Holy Spirit freely to those that ask Him. So when you say, come Holy Spirit, He's giving Holy Spirit freely. He's very generous with presence. And He's very generous with power. And once I got the revelation that He's not holding it back, and i got to fast for 40 days to get access to presence. He's giving Holy Spirit freely. The gift... Of the Holy Spirit. Who's, who's thankful for the gift? The Holy Spirit has come. And the Father gives the Holy Spirit. Without measure. And freely. That it's possible as Paul prayed. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. The fact that Paul would pray. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Tells me we can. And two. You're not. I know theologically and the whole idea of finished works and identity and we're not under any kind of law and, you know, don't try so hard contending, praying, fasting, pressing in is kind of an idea that a lot of people I know today that I call Starbucks Christians, they're really not into really going after it. And they're like, well, that's not the rest of God. And I said, well, I believe in the supernatural rest of God as you're working. You're doing the works of God in the spirit, not of the flesh or obligation, but empowered of the Holy Spirit. We get to do kingdom works, you know. But uh, I thought, Lord, how much can I really expect to have now? Should I limit you based on, you know, how we identify or recognize or even receive? You know, think of, about gifts and anointings and mantles. I kind of did a whole school on this, uh, just teaching on the subject of spiritual gifts. You know, the nine gifts of the Spirit or the gifts the Father would give, seven gifts, you know, including generosity and prophecy and administration, you know, the seven gifts. And then thinking about the fivefold ministry, the apostle, pastor, prophet, teacher, evangelist. These are all gifts that would come from the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Talking about anointings, different anointings. You know, it's amazing because I'm going to pray for the anointing here tonight and Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, when you talk about the anointing, we as Christians, especially in a charismatic or Pentecostal type background, we think of the anointing as like some magical buzzword. And, hey, guys, we're going to have a fresh anointing type meeting. Well, what does that even mean when anointing in itself means to just simply rub or smear like oil and rub and smear? The question is, what are you being anointed with? It's not just one anointing or, hey, everybody, it's the anointing. We just throw it around like a buzzword. And we've lost the power of impartation because we don't think in terms of, well, what am I being anointed with? Is there prophetic anointings? Is there healing anointings? Are there preaching anointings? Are there deliverance anointings? So, you know, I've been in meetings, you know, where we've had anointing services. We're going to pray for the anointing. 
But what is God anointing me with? Because anointing in itself just means I'm going to consecrate you and rub you and smear you with oil. But you're being anointed with. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me with to preach the gospel. I'm anointed to preach. I'm anointed to heal. I'm anointed to, you know, set the captives free. So I think uh, there's many different types of anointing. So I was teaching on gifts, anointings, and then mantles. And people go, well, what are mantles? Mantles have to do with your calling. Before you were in the womb, I knew you. This is your call. This is your purpose. You're an evangelist. You're an apostle. You're a worship leader. You're a revivalist. Whatever. It's who you are. It's your call. And the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And some people never really wake up to who they are. They never walk in their identity, their purpose and call. So mantles. Gifts, anointings, and mantles. And the Lord said, we tend to identify people based on, well, that's a prophet, that's his gift, that's a healing ministry, that's his gift, that's a teaching ministry, that's his gift. And as much as I believe in those things, how many of you know when you identify somebody by a title, there's like expectations, like what comes with that? You're a prophet, you have the gift, you got the mantle. So there's an idea of what you can or cannot do if you're not a pastor or if you're not a teacher and you're limited to the office, well, I'm a prophet. Or how about if you have or don't have the gift of healing you're not a miracle worker I thought Lord you know as great as all that is my question is how far can friendship and intimacy with God take you what about just raw hunger will God do things for friends and sons you know outside of the limitation of well I'm not called to that I'm not anointed for that that's not my mantle you know, can God raise up a modern day generation of Enoch's and Adam's that are just concerned about knowing God and not being limited by what their gift is or isn't? You know, the idea that we're excluded from because that's not our call. And yet we still recognize gifts and anointings and mantles. But yet what will friendship, what will God do for sons? Could a, could a son of God be more prophetic than a prophet? Can a son of God... Have experiences with God. Shall I hide from Abraham my friend? Like is the friendship with God anointing enough? Walking with God. Knowing God. Experiencing encountering God. Is that enough? I mean what will the father do for the son? Not just what will the father do for the prophet, the teacher, the... And I think we've become so gift focused... That we feel excluded, or, or as far as the expectation of, well, I'm not called to the ministry of healing, so therefore, how does that even apply to me? I'm not an evangelist. How does that apply for me? You know, stadiums and revival, and God's raising up the power evangelist and releasing mass harvest. Well, that, that's kind of not who we are and what we do, but that's what he does. And we need to recognize and honor a prophet in the name of a prophet, get the prophet's reward. But when we try to build our lives around, well, you know, here's my business card, I'm a bishop, or here, you know. But I want to be this friend of God. And so here's, here's the, what you need to think about in the terms of you know, being a friend of God. What will God show friends? Shall I hide from Abraham? I'm bringing judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. But maybe we should tell him. Jesus and the two angels having a conversation. You know, we kind of didn't mention to Abraham when he was so hospitable to host us. We forgot to tell him that the real reason we came was not just to announce about this time next year he's going to have a son, Isaac. But maybe we should tell him about the fact that we're bringing judgment to a city. Because he's a friend. You know, Moses was the prophet, but he was called the friend that God speaks to face to face. Under the old covenant. 
So this whole idea of how much of God, how much of Jesus can you have, you can have as much of Jesus now as you want to. But we get afraid. Our theology gets afraid. Our, our biblical somatics get afraid. Our end-time eschatology gets afraid. Or we, we say, well, they're weird, or that's a Jesus freak. Why? Because I talked about visions or dreams or angels or heavenly experiences or supernatural encounters, which to me would be normal should you be in heaven eternally, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so the whole realm of possibility, right? Should you be in heaven right now, enjoying your full inheritance? And I believe in a full inheritance. Literal heaven, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is here, yet it's at hand. I started to wonder, well, Lord, through the Holy Spirit and, you know, biblically, the character, the nature of God and the standard of the word of God, can I begin to enjoy my inheritance like now or do I have to like wait for fullness in eternity? I said, but you know, what gets in the way sometimes is what's between my ears and bad theology or whether I'm a Calvinist or an Arminianist or, you know, whatever biblical way that I've learned to look at Scripture in context, which we need. But we can be so programmed to some belief system. You know, what about you didn't grow up around church? You're just kind of new. Or you grew up all your life around church. You get pretty stuck on the idea of how to do church or what church looks like. We call it Christianese. And, and when you travel as much as I do and you preach in different churches, last Sunday I was in an all-black church. The only white people were on my team. And I was like, it's a whole different community and culture. They didn't know the names that I knew, the churches that I had preached in. They were saying, do you know this prophet? Do you know this bishop? And I didn't know any of their names either. And I said, there's a whole community of churches like this. And you just realize when you get to go into different places and, and minister that it's not just all what you're used to. It's not just all one kind of, of way, one kind of worship, you know. And, and it can be healthy sometimes to get out side of what we're used to. And we learn the language. We learn how to do what we do and teach and preach. And we, we read all these kind of books and listen to only these kind of speakers. That we don't realize how much wider and diverse the kingdom is sometimes. That's why I love going into all the world and preaching the gospel. And I get into churches that are Mennonite and Baptist. And I said, no Baptist church would probably have me in America, but they have me in India and Pakistan. And I'm like, the number one church to host me in Korea was Presbyterian. And then Presbyterian churches are like offended at the idea that Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches, you get the, in America. Because they were like, well, you know, are, are they Baptist or Southern Baptist? And so our whole, like how we define kingdom, our expectation, can be based on what we do or do not see. The culture that's not just tolerated but celebrated, if, if the place in which we eat the most doesn't celebrate supernatural experiences, there may not be a lot. And we can base so much of what we expect to encounter based on what our pastor does or does not see. I had a pastor that never had angelic encounters. And so when I told him I did, he was really offended at the idea and offered me all his caution, which was right. But it was wrong at the same time. Because he said, well, I've been preaching for 25 years, and if the angels are going to come to anybody, they should be coming to me. I'm the pastor of the church, and you're my disciple, and I'm mentoring you. Why are you having all these angels? And how many times this month did you say you had an angelic encounter? And I said, man, I'm just trying to know God. And I didn't know that angels were possible. And I didn't know that they weren't until I had one. And I had to find it in the Bible. 
Now, what happens when your experiences in God is going faster, further, and higher than your theology? We're trying to get all of our experiences to subject first to our belief systems and theology, which can change over the years. And then God knows how just to break in and mess up everything that you believe the way that you believe it. And somebody said to me one time, you know, uh, are you a rapture guy? Are you a, a post? Are you a mid? Are you a rapture list, a victorious, triumphant type church? Where do you land on the whole thing? A preterist or whatever? I said, man, these are just big words, you know, you're throwing around that, man. Uh, I, I don't know what, where I kind of land on the whole idea of rapture. You know, I believe we're going to be caught up and changed and we're going to have a new body. And I believe in a literal heaven and hell. And I just don't know if I land on the, on the pre, post, mid. But I'll say this. I'll say this. If there was a rapture, even if I didn't believe in one, I would be in it. That offends some of my rapture friends, you know. You know the idea that all they preach is rapture and, you know, eschatology. And, you know, what do you mean you'd be in it? I said, because I know the Lord and I watch and pray and, you know, I'm saved. And how about this? Should there not be a rapture, I hope you're ready to go through it. Whether it's mid or post, arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord, deep darkness has covered the earth. So we better be preparing a bride to go through it, not just kind of get out of here and hold the fort till Jesus comes. And that can be said even without denying your theology of rapture. I said, how about this one? You don't believe in spiritual gifts, anointings, and mantles. Somebody was arguing with me about how I was a false prophet and why I was preaching heresy. And then I told them what I believed about the gospel. And I presented the gospel. And they said, well, that's theologically sound. And I said, well, that's what I preach and believe. And I'm born again and saved. They said, well, do you believe in Toronto? I went, whoa, whoa, okay. You just kind of played your cards now. Now I know where you're coming from. Do you believe in Pensacola? And then they're like, ah, you believe in the moves of God, and you believe in revival, and you believe in awakenings. And I said, let me guess, you don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Nope, that stopped with the apostles. I said, oh, now I can get the idea of why you think I'm a false prophet, because you're never going to believe anything that I say, because you've already made up your mind that somehow Pentecostal, charismatic, super spiritual, you know, type Christian. So let alone trying to get you to kingdom encounter. I said, here's what's amazing. If you've settled the issue of knowing Jesus and you're born again, we're going to be in heaven together. And I tell all the people that don't believe in the gifts or speak in tongues, I go, guess what? You're going to be in heaven with me too. Because speaking in tongues doesn't get you to heaven. Prophecy doesn't get you to heaven. Gifts don't get you to heaven. Jesus does. And you may not like my celebration of Pentecost or my celebration of gifts and anointings and mantles and miracles and raising the dead. And you may want to argue that it can't be possible. Because you don't theologically have room, but because we share the common idea that every man must be born again, and the death and the rest, these are essential truths. You know, it's amazing how divisive and, and offended we can be with our pet ideas of how we want to believe our favorite author, our favorite preacher, our favorite whoever on television, and we can hold fast. How much we're not having. So I kind of went to the fullness of thinking, well, I'm going to push the idea or the envelope here on how much of Jesus can I have while still on the earth, so to speak, in the flesh. And how many visions would be too many? 
Now, I don't even know if you get to think this way, but I actually got to the place where I started thinking, am I having too many visions and revelations of the Lord? Am I having too many dreams? Am I having too many angelic encounters? Am I having too many kingdom encounters? Am I having too many experiences where I don't have to have a purpose, by the way, in the midst of it all, like I I had an encounter with God so I could have my mandate to the nations or prophesy over a city or bring a word from heaven. I got to the place where it was just about intimacy. So even if I went to the throne or had a third heaven experience, as I would call it, or any kind of supernatural type experience, as you might call it, it wasn't always about what I was getting from God to prepare or get ready, because I'm preaching Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. So much of what we do is about preparing and getting ready. I don't even know that we've maintained intimacy with God just because we love God. Especially if you do the ministry the way I do ministry and preach 300 times a year. You start wondering if you would seek God the way that you love God and seek God, you know, if you didn't have to get a prophetic word or have something to preach fresh and new. And so much of my prayer life can be around the stuff that you do for God in life, in ministry, in revival, in truth. You wonder whether you would just love God should he take everything away. Like Job said, though you slay me, I will trust you. I've had to lose it all more than once just to find out I really loved him still. And I thanked him in the end that I lost it all because then I was able to have an awakening and a revival personally and and be in the secret place. And then God was able to give it all back to me. Sometimes he really does have to strip it all away just so that you can find where you are in your love and passion for Jesus. Because so much of what we do today when we pray is about getting something. And yeah, I love to get words of knowledge. I love to get prophetic words. I love to get stuff that's going to help me get people set free and healed. I, I, I really do. And I actually got to the place in my prayer life where I started to have to separate what I called intimacy with God, just kind of being at the feet of Jesus, and praying for the purpose of revelation. Soaking for the purpose of getting revelation or getting stuff. Just because I wanted to love God without any motivation but just you're worthy and I love to be at your feet. And I didn't want to feel like I was at your feet and trying to get stuff for Friday night's meeting. So I would have what I call, you know, moments where I could just, you call it your devotionals. But so much of what we call our devotionals is even us about bringing our prayer list and our agenda. And depending on how much pressure you have going on in your life is how much you pray or how much you fast. How much money you need? How many cares you got to cast because he cares for you? And that's a biblical idea. We cast our cares because he cares for us. But so much of what we do when we pray can be just about praying through, casting our cares, being an intercessor. It's not just about love and being and worship. And so for me, I've got like a prayer time is my intimacy soaking time. And then I have my, this is the hour I pray to get revelation and get stuff. Now, of course, God's free to break in and do whatever he wants to the way that he wants to because he's God and I'm not. But just for my own heart, knowing there were times I was just loving and seeking the kingdom of God, not after stuff, just seeking the kingdom first so he could add all these things, I literally will have times where I'll go, this is just my intimacy, and I won't pray about anything. I'll say, Father, you know the things I have need of, so... I'm not even going to talk to you about all those things I need because I'm going to trust that God acts for the one that waits for him. God acts for the one that waits. 
The Father knows the things you have need of. That's why we don't need the vain, long repetition prayers. And somebody said, you said you prayed one time, four to 12 hours a day. Well, what do you pray about? I run out of things to pray about after 10 minutes. And I said, that's because you don't know communion. Communing with God is very different than prayer. I say, you run, you, listen, I say real prayer doesn't begin until you run out of things to pray about. When you can get blessed enough that you've given him all your cares and requests and supplications and anxieties, and you've worshiped till you know the presence, and then you just kind of steward the presence, that's so much more freedom in that. That's why Jesus said, the Father knows what you need. You know, our, our prayer life should not be built around trying to get stuff. That's kind of a simple... But because I need so much stuff in what I do as a preacher, as a minister, I need to get revelation. I need to get words of knowledge. And I love that stuff. I'm passionate about hearing the voice of God. I'm passionate about revelation. So I said, Lord, I'm going to lay aside those things. And even the whole idea of, you know, gifts, anointings, and mantles. And I'm going to ask the question, how far friendship and hunger and intimacy with God could take with you? And I'm going to really go after positioning and posturing, making myself available to encounter kingdom. How much kingdom can I have now? Or is it a heaven that I'm going to wait for? And I'm not going to let theology dictate that to me. I'm not going to let my hurts and wounds dictate that to me. I'm not going to let my brain dictate that. I'm not going to let my Christian knees dictate that to me. I'm going to let Holy Spirit, come, keep coming, Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be available to experience and encounter as much of heaven as I can now, like a modern day Enoch that got so close, he passed over and was like, oops, went too far. <laughs> and nobody's going to tell me that I can't because I'm going to be a friend and God's going to say, shall I hide from my friend what I'm doing? Shall I hide the secrets that I'm doing in America or the secrets in any city? Or the secrets of the universe. I, I started thinking about the idea that if I was to go back to our original purpose. The whole idea that God didn't just get me saved to get me to heaven. But got me saved to get heaven in me. If I went all the way back to the real purpose in the beginning of redemption. Is that you were born again to see. And born again to enter the kingdom of God. Future. You are going to a place called heaven. But really being born again is that new nature. So your nature now, your first nature now is spirit living in a body. It's not you in a body trying to be spiritual. Your first nature now, a citizen of the kingdom of God, is your first nature is spirit trapped inside a body. You understand what I'm saying? So you need to start thinking in the beginning God made me of two worlds. He made me of heaven, the breath of heaven, and the dust, the ashes of the earth, you know, the dust of the earth. He made me of two worlds in the beginning, heaven and earth. And so activating my spiritual senses, which we need to have kingdom encounters, I've chosen to be as focused on hearing God through all my spiritual senses. So if, if you're thinking I'm going to hear the voice of God, you might think still small voice hearing the voice of God. But you hear the voice of God through what you taste. You hear the voice of God through what you see. You hear the voice of God through what you touch and feel. You hear the voice of God through what you smell, discernment. You hear the, and sometimes you miss hearing the voice of God when you're in the presence of God because you're trying to hear the voice of God with the wrong, and you have all five spiritual senses. You might taste in your mouth honey and God's speaking to you about revelation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You might be in the presence of God and smell uh, swamp and, and death. I call it rotting eggs. 
there's probably a spirit of death or cancer in the room. You might be, you know, trying to hear the presence of God or maybe even see because everybody wants to be a seer. And you're trying to see, you know, what's happening in the spirit. And God's letting you feel pain in your right kidney because he's talking to you about somebody getting healed in their kidney. So you have to learn how to hear God in all your senses. So you're born again to see. And the whole idea of the redemptive plan of God in salvation was to get Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you become the temple where he abides. You're not just saved to get the heaven, fire insurance. But that heaven could be in you. And the walk that you have in the limited few years you have here is to demonstrate God in character and love and nature and kind of release heaven on earth. But how far can we really go? And there's the whole caution, you know, we, you know be careful. And, but, you know, God and his ability to keep me is greater than the devil's ability to deceive me. We have all this fear that maybe the encounters or experiences we're having aren't God. And sure, there has to be an examining and a test of spirits and a, you know, hold fast and, and, and the word of God. That should be a given. But we can't let this fear rob us from why can't I see in the spirit every day? Not just like once a week or once a month or once a year. So the whole idea of how much of God, well, how many visions am I allowed? How many dreams? I was in a meeting one time in New York City preaching, and the pastor counted 85 words of knowledge in one service. I didn't do any preaching that day. It was just words of knowledge. But 85, I mean names, dates, birth dates, sicknesses, disease, everything you could imagine for four straight hours. And the pastor counted, you gave 85 words of knowledge. Now, some of us just trying to get one or two or a few, and how many can you have in a day, in a year? How many times can we talk about angels? You know, I literally had a season not too long ago where 21 angels came over 23 different days. 23 days, I had 21 angelic encounters. And my brain struggled with God. You know, I don't want to just talk about and be so focused on and preach angels, but 21 angelic encounters in 23 days. I mean, why? I didn't just complete a 40-day fast. I wasn't any extra holy. I was just... And I thought, why am I having angelic encounters? I mean, I could take one or two, but I saw 21 angels in 23 days. It was like, give me my daily bread, the manna from heaven every day. It was like, here's a new angel. And I struggled with the idea, how do I even share these things, you know? And it doesn't make me any more spiritual. It doesn't make me any more holy. And it it doesn't happen every day. But I've had seasons like that. And then I've had these times where it was like the floodgates of heaven were open. And, the you know, the revelation knowledge gift is just just flowing. You, You get, you know, 85 words. And then there's times where you're like, God, have you even said anything in the last three days? Maybe I'm not listening. But, you know, where it's sovereign, right? God initiates. But does all encounters have to be sovereign? Things really changed for me when I began soaking for the purpose of revelation. Where I would set aside time to go, God, this is my hour to get stuff. To hear, to see, to get ready to preach. This is why I'm soaking and praying right now. That's when my life began to change. And then the more I just loved God out of intimacy, the more overflow there was. It was like where I would have to really wait and struggle and pray to try to just get one thing or see one thing. It was like the more my intimacy was, was kind of just naturally happening, the more overflow I'd get when I would wait for revelation. 
and I connected my intimacy or how hot it was, fiery hot for God, I connected that to my ability to receive revelation. And it got to the place where it was so easy to enter in that it would be like one conscious thought and I'd be in the presence of God, connected. I didn't have to take 10, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, two songs, like a struggle to get off of me, what's heavy to get in. I would just have a thought and I'd be in the presence of God. So being born again, and the idea that how much of heaven, you can have as much of Jesus now as you want to, but usually religion tells you no, or fear, or worry, or the cares of this world choke the word, life, jobs, family, being natural, hanging out with friends, fun, movies, they should all be a given. But when you understand that you're one conscious thought from the presence of God, you know, the whole coming of the Holy Spirit and, and the whole leaving of the Holy Spirit, as much as I believe and preach and talk about the manifest presence of God, my life changed one day in prayer when I was connected to the glory and all of heaven was raining down and I was in my prayer room. Of course, there'll always be like a phone call in that moment. Somebody's on the phone. And you'll answer the phone, it'll be your mother-in-law or something, and you'll be like, Mom, you always call when I'm in prayer and I'm in the glory, or the kids will want ice cream or cereal. You'll be like, the milk is in the fridge. I'm praying. Can I have 30 minutes to be alone with God? Because we have our prayer room, right? We have our prayer time, or the time we set aside for devotions, and that's always what gets attacked the most. And pretty soon we get too busy. We're a mom. We get too busy. Life, we get too busy. And so we have this idea of like God coming and God leaving. Like, like, so you're in the glory and you're just like, whoa, God, you know, you're awesome. I feel the presence of the Lord. And then you're out real quick. You know, just somebody's at the door. Your husband wants something. Then you always have those fights in the car on the way to church. And you're like, man, fine. I'm, you, you know I'm going to church. I'm going to be on the worship team. I've got to preach this morning. It's now the time. It's like frustration and anger will get you out of the presence of God faster than anything. But the way we think, right? So I remember one time being in prayer, and my kids were at the door, or, or the phone rang. And, and, and pretty soon when it was done, I went to go back to praying. And I was like, oh, the presence of God's gone. And You know, the Lord said to me one time, he goes, where do you think I went? He said, I'm here. And I said, what do you mean you're here? You're not consciously aware because you left in your mind. That's why I say you're one conscious thought from the presence of God. The whole idea of practicing the presence of God, like getting disciplined about practicing the presence of God, is overcoming in your thought life, taking every thought captive because the cares of this world, the distractions. How about this word? Focus. Whether you're being engaged or not. If we just all stopped right now, because our focus is on listening to what I'm saying, and you put your focus back onto engaging presence, ready? We're in. It should be that quick for you to enter back in, because you have the Christ in you, so you're close to the throne, right? You're close to the presence. That's a whole other message, but just the idea that you should be able to have immediate access. But you just, when your mind goes to somewhere else, or stays there in a busy world. We're like, man, I wish I could pray five hours a day, but I got to work 10 hours a day. 
And I was like, why can't you bring God to work? Why do we have this on and off again type idea when Paul said pray without ceasing? Surely it's possible to encounter and experience unbroken, constant fellowship with God. So my idea of the whole purpose of redemption, right, comes down to life in the garden, going back to the way it was in the beginning. When God got me saved, you just get saved me, get me to heaven. He got me saved so heaven could be in me. And now how far can I take that? Well, God said you could have free access to eat freely of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. We, we talk about the way that it was for Adam in the garden. Is that possible post-cross? That you and me can go back to knowing God like they knew God in the garden. And what would that be like? Well, the Father would come down in the cool of the day, in the breeze of the day, and walk and talk openly in conversation with Adam. No separation. And the Father would say, hey, there's two trees here. Well, you know, don't eat those trees over there. Those are the tree of knowledge, good and evil. But there's another tree over here. You can freely eat of this one. Freely eat of the tree of life. You can experience and encounter and taste and have as much of that tree as you want to. Don't let anybody limit how much of the tree you can have. Freely eat. So I don't know why we don't eat more. When in Christ, right, Revelation 2.7, post-cross, I've been restored to have access to freely eat of the fruit of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. You know why the Lord said don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? He said because once you eat that tree, you're going to be able to know the difference between what's right and wrong and you're going to become sin conscious. And you're going to be constantly measuring yourself by the fruit of the wrong tree because now you're going to be aware of the fact that you were naked. Because in the beginning you didn't even know you were naked. Who said you were naked? You had no conscious awareness of the fact that you were so naked and vulnerable and you were never thinking in terms of God's here, he's not, now I'm separated and hiding. Your mind didn't think that way in terms of you're in the presence, you're not, you're in sin, you're in the flesh, you're connected to God, you're not, until you ate of the tree that gave you knowledge of what's right and wrong. That was never my intention. My intention was just keep eating over here freely. So that you would never know the hiding, the shame, the conscious. And now I'm trying to get you to back to understand that I've made you as righteous and holy as you could ever be. And I've imputed to you the gift of righteousness because you in your own self would never be able to be righteous enough. So I did it as a free gift of righteousness. I gave it to you. So that you could be free of the guilt, condemnation, and shame. So that you can have the separation again, which Adam had with me in the beginning. Where every day, he had open conversation with me without any separation. I even brought him the animals to see what he would name them. And I thought, Lord, is that what I can have in Christ now? Is that what I would have to wait for heaven in its fullness, eternity? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And we pray that prayer, don't we? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have to look to what it would be like if you were in heaven eternally to know what heaven on earth is like here. So take that outside of the context of just kingdom works, miracle signs and wonders and casting out demons. And how about this? If, if the kingdom of God was here... What would it be like in atmosphere? Could you have the very atmosphere and activity of what it would be like if you were around the throne room? And the lights and the colors and the sounds and the lightnings and the thunders and all the activity of the throne 
standing on the sea of glass like crystal? Or is that too literal? Is that an experiential truth or just a positional truth? I started to have it at, at times in my life what I called throne room encounters. And people were like, what's a throne room encounter? I said, well, if you've ever read anything about the throne room in the Bible, I've experienced that in meetings where I was caught up to the throne literally. So I was just experiencing the Bible. We were like false prophet talking about throne room encounters. I was like, I had a third heaven experience. I went to paradise. I went to the garden. You know, like Paul the apostle talked about, I knew a man and he was caught up several times to a place they called third heaven. So is there a place in heaven called the third heaven? And that was the first time I was ever reading about the fact that we're seated together with Christ where? In heavenly places. The idea that heaven has places. I'd never entertained the idea that I'm seated in heavenly places, not a heavenly place. So how many places does heaven have? And then we have the traditional, well, this is first heaven, this is second heaven, this is third heaven. You know, I don't even know that there's, I've seen seven atmospheres in heaven. I wouldn't say seven heavens, but I've definitely went through seven atmospheres. A whole realm that was just like angels, the throne room, that was just a place in itself. Paradise, the garden of God, you know, we call it the third heaven. I went into a place where God was creating. I saw the end of the universe and how creation was happening. The Lord would speak the word and the angels would do his word. I went into a place, you know, that was just like mansions and streets that are golden and kind of, you know, I saw people in my family. You might want to call it cloud of witnesses. I literally saw a place like that. I went through seven unique atmospheres in what I discerned as atmospheres. Places, heavenly places. The Bible does mention a third heaven as a place that Paul went to. Now, we struggle that we could even have that same experience because we think of the reason Paul had that experience. Or how about the reason of any other vision or dream or encounter? And now we exclude ourselves because we think, well, if we're not receiving a, you know, a doctrine or a message or God's not validating, then why should I believe that that's possible in the realm of possibility of how much kingdom encounter I can have? See, for me, I've just done away with that whole kind of thinking, and, and, and now I have an expectation. That's an important part to receiving kingdom encounters. Your expectation of how much of a capacity... Do you have to receive and manifest heaven? What's possible? How many angelic encounters are too many? How many visions are too many? How many dreams? And I remember reading in that same passage of scripture about Paul going into that place called the third heaven. He said he had an angel sent to him or, or a messenger of Satan, a messenger to buffet him. Remember that? Not a thorn in the flesh, being not sickness. That should be given by now, especially if you're in this church. It wasn't a sickness. But definitely this messenger from Satan that came to torment and afflict Paul. Remember that? Because of the abundance of visions and revelations of the Lord. Yes, it was uh, establishing the mystery, the gospel to the Gentiles. It was establishing truth and doctrine. But at the same time, if somebody could have the abundance of visions and revelations, then how am I unbiblical if I'm having the abundance of visions and revelations? Now, it doesn't mean that I don't have demonic torment and more warfare or things that break me and crush me and fiery trials so I can be faithful with all the abundance of visions and revelations. But it's biblical. And to me, if it's in the Bible once, it's possible. 
And I made the statement earlier that for me, all supernatural encounters didn't have to serve a purpose except for intimacy. Why did Paul pray in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18 that you would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation? That you would be given the spirit of revelation, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. To know him. The word knowledge of him, the word knowledge means to be intimately acquainted with him. The whole purpose of why we have wisdom and revelation is to be intimately acquainted with him. To see him, to know him, to experience him. And receive from him. And so once my expectation in posturing myself and making myself available for supernatural things was just about knowing Him, that's why I get to be in the Spirit. That's why I get to travel in the Spirit with Holy Ghost. That's why I expect and can pray, God, open the eyes of my heart to see. And I see every day. Because I'm experiencing my inheritance, which I've become a joint heir. Whatever inheritance belongs to Jesus belongs to me now. Most of those inheritances you won't need when you get to heaven because God paid for you to have them now. And every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3, is available to the believer that's in Christ, seated together in heavenly places. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And most of those are provided for you to have while you're still here. Because in heaven, you don't need healing. In heaven, you're not going to need money, the way we understand money. In heaven, you're not going to need joy because heaven will be a full manifestation of joy. A lot of what Christ provided in what we call finished work is for us to encounter and experience now. Prosperity and blessing is for now. The favor of God is for now. You need to believe and expect that the fullness of everything that Christ paid for is for you to have now. And yes, the greatest miracle of salvation, the forgiveness of sin, that should be a given. The beautiful gift of repentance, that should be a given. It's not some ugly discipline, repent. It's a gift God gave us so we could be free and think different. God gave us the gift of repentance. There won't be repentance in heaven. And really, repentance is so you can have the fullness of what God paid the price for. I'm an experience at all kind of guy. I'm not like, let's just stop, you know, salvation, my name's in the book, and praise God, let's be conservative. If you can speak in new tongues, I'm like, you should. The Bible said, these signs will follow them who believe. What was the first sign? They will speak in new tongues. So was that for all believers or just Pentecostals? You see, these signs will follow them who believe, right? They will speak in new tongues. So that means all believers, if they want to, can speak in new tongues. But it's not a requirement to get to heaven. We have reduced the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the church today, whether you're baptized in the Holy Ghost or not, based on whether you have the initial evidence of speaking in tongues or not. When I believe you can and should, but I believe the initial evidence of Holy Spirit filling in baptism is you receive power to be a witness. And most times they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues. It said they prophesied too. So you could say prophecy should be an initial evidence with tongues. And, and, and I'm all about speaking in tongues. We should not forbid it. I like what Paul said. I speak in tongues more than all of you. I used to pray in tongues. My goal was four hours a day in tongues. 
But I want miracles and healing and I want all the other gifts too. I might even want them more. Power to be a witness and healing the sick and cleansing the leper and raising the dead and casting out devils. But we've reduced the baptism of the Holy Spirit to whether you do or do not speak in tongues. And we've offended people that go, are you saying I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit because I don't speak in tongues? No, I'm not saying that. God's upgraded our theology in a lot of ways. But as a Christian, why would we not want to have all these signs follow? I mean, why would we want to settle short for the fullness of what Christ paid for? It's like we want to dispute, is healing in the atonement? Is healing in the covenant? And I said, if there's healing in the Bible, then let's get healed. Let's not try to argue the idea of, do you believe that healing? And how many will God heal? And what does the Bible say about healing? If healing is there, if prosperity is there, if freedom and victory is there, does God answer prayer? Absolutely. Does He only answer prayer for salvation and provision? Does He answer healing prayers? You can't have God, you know, well, we don't believe in gifts and healing. That was 2,000 years ago. Miracles don't happen. Look at all the good people that love God and that were sick and died. Are you saying that they weren't as holy as you because you have healings or believe in healing? I said, no, I just believe God answers prayer. I believe God answers healing prayer. I tell my sensationalist friends that don't even accept or believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I get them all the time. I go, do you believe God answers prayer? Absolutely. Do you believe He answers all prayer? Absolutely. Do you believe He answers healing prayer? Well, we don't believe in healing today. Well, that's not our focus. God in His sovereignty can heal some, but you guys just go after the healing thing, and and you go after the prosperity thing. And I went, yeah, because once you settle the issue of salvation, what are you going to do for the rest of eternity? Well, do you believe I have to speak in tongues? No, but you get to. Why would you not want all if there was more? Not that you will even have more, but why not push the envelope in hunger, in friendship, in intimacy, and don't be, you know, your expectation just being identified by what's your gift, what's your anointing, what's your mantle. That's way too limiting because if you don't have the office of the prophet, there's just certain things you won't expect that the prophet gets because you don't think you're a prophet. And all things are possible. So I'm just kind of giving you how I think about the supernatural, my mindset, my expectation. This is what helps me position myself for kingdom encounters. I remember when I got around one of my, you know, spiritual fathers, he's gone to be with the Lord now, one of the greatest seer prophets, late prophet Bob Jones. I spent 13 years close with Bob Jones and traveled and did hundreds of conferences together. And got to, you know, have dinner and talk personally with Bob about the supernatural. He really couldn't talk about anything but heaven. My wife and I took Bob Jones out for dinner one time. And he said, you know, as if we were asking. He said, sorry, I don't have anything to say right now. um, But I haven't really been getting anything from the Lord for the last two days. And, you know, I'm really trying to figure out why it seems like heaven isn't moving or saying anything. And so I want to apologize because Bob would just sit in silence for 10 minutes and my wife and I would have dinner. It was really awkward because unless Bob had some current revelation to talk about, he didn't know how to talk about anything but heaven. I would say, so Bob, what's your background? Were you a military man? Yep, Navy. What sports do you like? And he would say his sports team. But you wouldn't have conversations with Bob Jones about the latest movie. Did you go see the Justice League? You wouldn't talk to Bob Jones about Christmas and shopping and golf and life. He had no interest in anything 
but having heavenly encounters and sharing his revelation. It didn't matter if there were two people at his house, 20 at his house, or he was in a conference of a thousand people. Never wrote a book, never had a TV show, and may have reached more millions with his prophetic gift, just being who he was. And in the natural, he was pretty unassuming. Sweaters and eagle shirts and floodwater pants and prophet from Arkansas. But really unassuming. You wouldn't even look and go, that's the man of God. You might even say, is that the prophet Bob Jones? Like the seer prophet? Because in the natural, he was just so unassuming and humble. Lived in a little townhouse. I said, what do you do with all your money? And I'm sure he just took stacks of thousands and put it under his bed. And some of it was in the bank. And he never worried about money. Never talked about money. Never talked about the offering. Never talked about the honorarium. And would just do stuff. And would eat at Golden Corral. <laughs> if not a Golden Corral, a cafeteria. And then he would talk about, I went to heaven 18 times this month and seen Jesus. And my brain would be so offended at the idea that he was seeing Jesus so much. And I thought, well, I can't say it's not biblical that you don't see the Lord, because technically that's what this whole thing's really about, so... But that, the fact that you're saying you had 18 visitations from the Lord, that you nearly received something supernatural from heaven, whether it was an angelic encounter, a vision, a message, a dream, every day, and you're concerned as you're having dinner with me and my wife because you haven't received anything from heaven in two days, and he's examining himself and repenting, and Lord, where are you? And there's times we go weeks and months if we've had anything supernatural, right? And a lot of people are, well, we walk by faith, brother, and not by sight. Absolutely, should be a given. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. So when there's no sight, you've got faith. But it should be a given. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't expect or have sight. It's like the idea that, you know, somebody said, man, you, you're so extreme and you're, you're such a person of ac excess. You give permission to excess. And I said, absolutely. Too many are given permission to careful and conservative that we've literally dropped the bar of living and looking anything like the New Testament church. Now, you want to just talk about supernatural things. I could bring it over into the realm of miracles and signs and wonders and, you know, raising the dead. You know, I remember the first time I ever heard that there was a man in Mexico that had a resurrection of the dead. And they said, it's not, it's not one, it's over 200. This, this missionary, David Hogan, yeah, in Mexico. I remember hearing at 22 years old that they had 200 people. And I, I, I didn't want to not believe because I believed the dead could be raised. I met a prophet from Africa that raised the dead. I said, God, the dead are, it's in the Bible. But I said 200 people are raised from the dead through one man's ministry in Mexico. That was back then. Now it's like over 500. And I struggled. Then the Lord came to me and he said, listen, that's not for you to decide whether it's literally actually 200 or maybe only 126, even if he had 10. Here's what the Lord said to me. He goes, do not let your offense dictate and determine because of what you're hearing that many would call excess or extreme. Determine what I'm going to do with and within and through your life. I felt like the disciples when Jesus said, when they said, are they for us or against? And the Lord said, don't worry about them over there. If they're not against us, they're for us. Don't worry about what they're doing. Worry about what you're doing. Stay in your lane, so to speak. And the Lord was rebuking me. 
And then I heard, you know, Heidi Baker and her ministry, Irish Ministries in Africa, they, them and their associates pastored over 200 resurrections of the dead. And I was believing God at 22 years old for the dead to be raised and prayed for seven years for the dead to be raised. I even had a tent in my crusades in Africa, and it was called the deliverance tent, and we even put up a sign for the dead. Bring the dead, put them in the tent, we'll pray for the dead to be raised. I talked about it on TV, on radio. I went after it for seven years, and nobody ever brought a dead body once in any of those meetings in Africa. No bodies in the tent. I went to a few homes. I went to a morgue and prayed for the dead to be raised. My first resurrection of the dead, real resurrection of the dead, was in Nigeria, Africa. Just a small child, a baby, raised from the dead. But I had seven years of just going after and praying for the dead to be raised. Um, I saw one raised from the dead in Baltimore. Just so you get the idea, it's not just happening in Africa. I saw the dead raised in Florida, in Lakeland, in Florida. I had one man raised from the dead in Alberta, Canada. I had a man raised from the dead in Mexico. Our most recent mission, well, actually twice, to Pakistan has had not one but three resurrections of the dead. We've had 37 people raised from the dead in the last 18 years. Go ahead and give the Lord a mighty shout for that. 37 testimonies of the dead raised. Now, somebody went, can you validate or prove any of those? And I went, well, I've had doctors and ambulance and you know, one team investigated 22 claims of resurrections from the dead. And they said, we can't call them resurrections, but we will call them miraculous resuscitations. And it really doesn't matter what evidence you bring. People are still just either going to believe or they're not going to believe. Well, I need the death certificate. Well, how can you show me the dead have been raised? You haven't been able to prove one claim of a... And I went, well, I got a video of a man being raised from the dead. You can watch on video the actual resurrection, (laughs) not after the fact, why he's dead. And you will see him raised from the dead. And then people still, well, how many actors and how much money did you pay? And you shouldn't make those fake videos. You know, when you feel the need as as a person to always constantly give in to the skepticism and the unbelief of the rest of the world. You're going to have no time and energy to do the works of the kingdom. I felt like the Lord rebuked me one day because I was so much about media and free access to the media and come on in Oprah Winfrey and Nightline News and Geraldo and all the television networks. I did hundreds of interviews, um, good, bad, and ugly. And the Lord really rebuked me one day and he said, stop all the secular media stuff because they're never going to validate the miracle signs and wonders and healing. You're just going to be constantly playing over to some spirit of having to prove. And I even see that spirit in the church today. And the Lord actually rebuked me. He said, your job is to not prove the claims of healing. Your job is to preach the gospel and heal the sick and, and go after the harvest. You just kind of let everything else fall. And if the people want to believe or not believe, that's up to them. But what needs to happen in your life is your heart right? Is it pure? Do you love God? You know, don't, don't, don't pay attention to all those other, you know, false prophet, false teeth, all the people that want to challenge and want some kind of proof. That's what they have to deal with before the Lord. And, and, and in the whole idea of, of excess here, or giving permission to more, the abundance in the realm of healing, I remember the first time I prayed for the deaf to be healed, I prayed for a thousand deaf people that weren't healed. And what frustrated me about it was my mother that raised me was totally deaf. So you know the miracle I wanted to see if there were biblical miracles I wanted the deaf to hear. 
So my mom, you know, never got healed. And she died at 48 years old of a massive stroke and died deaf, blind, crippled, and mute. As I was in the midst of a five-month healing revival and going after it. Prayed for a thousand deaf people that weren't healed. And I remember the first time a deaf person got healed. Looked like my mom, sounded like my mom. God opened up their ears. You deaf and dumb spirit. I went on to see over a thousand deaf people healed. Literally, I've had meetings where they would bring entire schools and every deaf person would be healed and the teachers would have no one else to go back to and teach in the deaf school because they were all healed. I literally had a meeting in India where in six days, 139 deaf mutes heard and spoke for the first time. Now, when you live in this kind of reality where you just, this is my idea of what I call normal. And I wonder if anybody else is normal. But if I was to be defined by what others might call normal, they might go, that's too much excess. You, you know, the fact that it's not just that we don't believe that you're like all the other faith healers. It's the fact that your claims are so ridiculous. That's what number, one of my number one, like, bloggers and, you know, people that kind of heretic, you know, heresy hunter type people. He said, it, you're, what makes you different than all the other healing ministries and the Benny Hens and all the other people that talk about miracles and healing is the fact that you talk about so many it can't just be like the deaf heard. You've got to be like a thousand deaf people got hurt. It can't just be like the dead was raised. You're like 37 were raised. And, and it offends them at the idea that the claims are just so many. And I struggled before the Lord with that. And I said, yeah, God, what is that? i got a competitive nature too. I read this story about the faith evangelist Jack Coe back in the late 40s and 50s when they had tent revivals in America. A. A. Allen, Jack Coe, Earl Roberts. Jack Coe was a faith evangelist. I know his son. And uh, I would watch Jack Coe videos. Really harsh. Really, If you sat under the preaching in the ministry of A. A. Allen and Jack Coe, most of us would walk out of churches today. Their methodology and their, their preaching was so rough and brash, most people in the name of love and grace wouldn't be able to handle the ministry of Jack Coe or A. Allen, should they be modern day today. But they got the stuff done, man. They got results, you know. And Jack Coe had a meeting where 38 people got out of wheelchairs in one meeting. I thought, God, I could labor for years to get one cripple from birth, just kind of healed, get out of that wheelchair and walk. And he had in one service 38 wheelchairs. That's something to go for. And I remember praying in my 20s, God, give me a day. Give me a meeting where I could have, it's just a struggle to get one person to even show up in a wheelchair anymore because they know everyone's going to zero in on that one wheelchair and they get so disappointed. And, you know, when the one wheelchair doesn't get healed, let alone even having a meeting where you have 40 wheelchairs, you know, in a service. That's a lot of opportunity. You hear what I'm saying? A lot of the lack of the supernatural in the church in America today is lack of opportunity. I don't know anywhere that I've preached in America where we even have access to 139 deaf mutes. I don't know of anywhere that I've preached in America where I have access on any given Sunday to 40 wheelchairs. And a lot of times, it's not more faith and more power in Africa and India and Pakistan. It's just lack of opportunity. I don't know that we have more than maybe one or two blind people in, in the meeting. I've had meetings where there were a thousand people blind to pray for. You're going to have blind people see. When you've got a hundred deaf people to pray for in a meeting, you're going to have ten deaf mutes here. When you've got a hundred wheelchairs and crippled people to pray for, somebody's going to walk. 
And sometimes we've got to stop beating ourselves up in America about why the supernatural is so much more greater in these third world countries. Because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Most of the opportunity, we just don't have the opportunity to do kingdom works. So we've got to be faithful with the level that God gives us. Pray for knee pain or arthritis or stage 4 cancer, whatever it is. But if we want to see the more notable, remarkable, spectacular miracles, we've got to be intentional, say intentional, intentional about living and going after kingdom. And most of that has to happen outside of the four walls of the church. So I was thinking about the abundance of miracles, signs, and wonders. And how I was offended at the idea that there could be hundreds of people raised from the dead. Before I ever saw somebody raised from the dead. Because to me it was just way too out there. That, you know, 200 raised from the dead. 500 raised from the dead. And people get offended that I've seen 37 resurrections of the dead. And why shouldn't that be new, the new standard of normal? Why cannot the new standard of normal be, of course the dead were raised. Why can't that be our response? Okay, you know, a thousand deaf people were healed. Amen, of course they were healed. Well, how many were really reached in that meeting in Pakistan? Why is it that we always want to go to that conservative, careful, well, I don't know, let's check and see and examine. And sure, it's a given. I'm not talking about the realm of exaggeration or fake or false or false prophet. or false, But I'm talking about if you're genuine going after the kingdom, you should expect every sickness and every disease to be healed. We should be able to come back and go, everybody in that meeting was healed. And we believe that they were. Not that they are, but what if we got to that place in faith and expectation that if Jesus had every sickness and every disease healed, we should be able to have meetings where every person that was sick was healed. And not that I haven't heard stories where that happened, but something in my heart always goes, were they really all healed? How do we know? And even if they weren't, the fact that it even looked like they all were, I should be rejoicing in that. I've had guys on my team go out into small villages where every person appeared deaf, blind, crippled, whatever their sickness was, to be free of their symptoms. That sounds like the healing of every sickness and every disease. And then I, I was offended at the idea. I was like, well, we can't really say they were or they all were. And then I caught myself in, why is that my go-to mode? When I hear a story of the supernatural, why is my first response, well, where's the proof and how do we know? Where's the evidence? It's amazing, you know, and, and here's Grace, doubting Thomas, still got to put his hands in the nail. God does these things, doesn't he? He still lets us, as doubting Thomas as we can be, put our hands at times in the but I don't want to be of the spirit of doubting Thomas as my go-to. I want to be that zealous, of course, first in, believe God, go after it, the abundance of visions and revelations. How many souls can we have? Can we win millions? I'm going to end with this. I remember when I was 22 years old, and living in Canada, never had been through like an official Bible school or had any real training. And I was a young Christian, baby Christian. 
And I for sure in my mind, and probably a lot of other people's, wasn't ready for what you call ministry, like full-time. And I didn't have a job or any money at the time, and I had been praying and seeking God and having some pretty amazing encounters. And the Lord called me into, into ministry. It was a faith step. Didn't have any partners or money or invitations or opportunities. I just launched out in faith. There's a lot of other things that happened, but God really just called me into ministry, you know, on Mother's Day. After a season of all kinds of supernatural encounters and glory encounters and liquid honey cloud encounters and not going to get into all that. But all of a sudden I'm in ministry just on Mother's Day. And it was a decision I made and the Lord confirmed it. But even after, like I woke up, you know, on a Monday and I said, I'm in the ministry. I still didn't have an invitation or a partner or even understand what being in the ministry was. And as this young 22-year-old, without a passport, no money, living in this Abbotsford, B.C., Canada, outside of Vancouver, I said, Lord, I'm going to ask you for the nations. I'm going to dare to believe you'll give me nations as my inheritance. Heathen as my portion. Psalms 2, you know. Sounded like the most ridiculous thing when I'd never been like more than over the border to get milk. And, and in the natural, I've got all this, you know, like kingdom vision and dream. And, you know, my testimony and my background, I'm absolutely not ready or qualified. And here I am now, I'm in the ministry and I'm dreaming nations. I'm dreaming stadiums and fields and I'm dreaming harvest and God give me the heathen. And I decided to pray a real daring, risking prayer. God, give me a hundred thousand. It was so, so dead, flat, and fell to the ground, dribbled out of my mouth. Give me a hundred thousand souls. I was like, God, forgive me for even thinking, you know, that would be what Charles Finney had in the Second Great Awakening. In five years, he had a hundred thousand converted. Oh, I'm not Charles Finney. Lord, forgive me. I'm not Billy Graham or whatever it was in my head. And the Lord said, I didn't tell you to ask me for a hundred thousand. And I was like, what do you want me to ask for? And I felt like I was supposed to ask for more. And so I, I wrestled with, God, give me 200,000. And I thought I'd never been in a meeting where 22 people got saved. <laughs> I mean, if I was in a church of 50 people ever preaching, it was a good meeting. And I, I thought, Lord, I don't know what you're at. He goes, I didn't tell you to 250,000. And I finally wrestled my way. According to your faith, let it be done unto you. I got my head to, God, give me a million, you know. And I couldn't believe I said it. I was like, a million souls. I don't know how I'm going to even begin to accomplish, you know, with people of, you know, 20 people coming to the altar. Maybe in a lifetime, you know, give me a million. And then I thought, am I supposed to be the next Reinhard Bonnke or the next Billy Graham or the next, you know, revivalist? I've seen the guys on TV preaching, you know. And two weeks later, I get this invitation to South Africa. Go preach in South Africa. Didn't know anybody. And I just, I got my ticket and my money and I went there for 14 days and started preaching in the townships and just kind of got out in the marketplaces, open air, just preaching. And you could do that in South Africa, you know, and I did that and had my first like 863 salvations and preached every day on the streets and marketplaces and townships. And at night, I had to preach in a couple of black churches, but most of them were white, real racially divided. 
And I thought, what am I doing in churches preaching when more's happening on the streets and in the markets? And uh, by lunchtime, I'm going to reach, you know, thousands with the gospel tomorrow. I'm going to set up my truck and my sound system, drive out into the busiest marketplace and just preach, you know. And I, I struggled with how to love the church and the bride and, and love the streets and love the world, you know, and going into all the world and not becoming this judgmental, you know, what's wrong with you kind of deal. You're not doing enough kingdom work or evangelism and there seems to be that constant wrestle between power evangelists and churches and taking it to the streets and reaching the gospel and that message in the church. And how does it really fit, you know? How do we love the bride and love the church and, and the purpose of the church? And Most of the church doesn't value or see the evangelist. And there's that constant, well, thank you for 50 bucks. I'm going to do an outreach on Saturday and give hot dogs. That's what evangelism has kind of become. So there's this constant, you know, and then we get this attitude about the church not supporting the evangelist, and it's all about souls. You know, you know the, the dynamic. And so here I was struggling to go back into the churches at night because so much more was happening on the streets. I wanted to just keep preaching in the air and, you know, do crusades. And that's kind of what, when you do one, you just don't want to do anything else but preach in the harvest, preach in the stadiums, preach in the fields. But, you know, it costs a lot of money. You want to do the gospel. And so there was always that need for, well, God, how do I support my family and do what you called me to? And you called me to the nations. And after that one trip, when I got back, I was so ruined for the whole year. I begged God to let me go back to Africa. And he did. Ghana and Nigeria, West Africa. Went back at 23. Preached the gospel. Open fields. Thousands came. Here we are 18 years later, 73 nations by the grace of God. Some of them 10, 20, 30 times. You've gone to Africa and multiple trips to Mexico and different countries, but 73 countries. And I didn't have anything. You know, when I said, yes, here my Lord sent me, didn't have the training, didn't have the passport, didn't have the money, just kind of had all faith and vision. But I was fully committed, like radically sold out as you could ever be to giving myself to just the Lord and his presence. And two years ago, when I last preached here at Zion, I actually came to preach here. And the next morning, I had to fly out for our mission to Pakistan, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. 97, 98% Muslim. And I remember preaching here, and the next morning, leaving, lost my iPad. Nothing was going right. Barely caught my connecting flight, and I was going to Pakistan, thinking, God, what's going to happen when I meet my team, and we go into Karachi, and they're telling me about the security concerns, and we're going to have bomb-sniffing dogs, and we're going to have, you know, Practically a small army of about 4,000 people. Machine guns on the platform. Snipers on the roof. People had to go through the bomb, you know, just to get into the field. And I'd never been in that kind of situation. I'd never been in a country like Pakistan, known for terrorism and, you know, things like that. I'm going to be openly preaching the gospel. And what they said, we could have crowds of, you know... 200,000, 300,000. 
And so I've got a small team and we're going into, you know, Karachi, into Pakistan. And all I know is I had one word from heaven. This is kind of the backstory that most people don't know. I had one word from heaven from an intercessor. And this happened right before I got here to Zion. This was the last church that partnered and gave and sowed into our mission to Pakistan. And I remember being in California. I was having a 30 days of extended Fresno fire. And this anonymous intercessor, I still don't know her name, sent me a letter, very detailed, and said, I have a word from heaven for you, Mr. Bentley. I don't usually read those kind of letters I get from people that I don't know. And She's an intercessor. And she said, the Lord told me in Pakistan, it would be like a signpost, a trigger, the beginning of a new season for your ministry, even in America. And you were going to see a sign. It would be a sign of revival and harvest and awakening. It would be a nine-year-old boy would be resurrected from the dead. Specifically, a nine-year-old boy will be raised from the dead in front of the Muslim world. And this will give you an open door to bring the gospel in the Muslim Arab world. You'll have favor. And God will give you the nation. I thought, what a big prophetic word, you know. And as nervous as I was, you know, we get over to Karachi, we get over to Pakistan, and the meetings begin. And over five days, estimated, we had about 475,000 people attend five meetings. Almost half a million. And we had every biblical sign and wonder and miracle. The deaf, the blind, the crippled, great miracles, notable miracles. And after five services, we gave the altar call. And it was estimated that about 292,555 Muslims were saved. Nearly 300,000 Muslims over five days. And I remember preaching specifically with the pastors and leaders. And I was talking about raising the dead. And how what makes Christianity different than any other religion is the resurrection. You know, because most Muslim people don't just believe Jesus was a prophet and a teacher. They actually believe there was no cross. So the crucifixion never happened. So let alone the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the Holy Spirit. We don't even believe that we believe in the man Jesus, prophet, teacher, healer. But he never went to the cross. There was no man that died on the cross named Jesus. There was no cross. So really having to preach the idea that Jesus is the resurrection and the life with evidence and a witness. On the fifth day, we were saying, bring the sick. And if anybody dies and I'm in the city, just kind of threw it out there like I did in Africa for seven years. And I had my tent for dead raising and nobody ever brought a body. I just happened to throw it out there over a few meetings. That if I'm preaching and somebody dies in the city, you go ahead and bring their body. And we'll pray for them. So on the final service, and I had given the altar call and prayed for a baptism in the Holy Spirit, over 200,000 people got baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues for the first time. The ground is shaking. We're rejoicing. It's near the final end of the meeting. When my missions director at that time, his name was John, he comes up in the midst of the jubilation and celebration, 292,555 Muslims, and he taps me on the shoulder and he says, Mr. Bentley, and by now I can hear this noise of like a woman wailing, screaming. And I look over and he says, we finally got this couple after 45 minutes. Took 45 minutes to get them up the stairs that we had to fight through the crowds. 
And we got him up on the stairs. And I can see the father. He's holding his dead limp son in his arms. And they're standing on my stage. Maybe 250,000. People were in the streets that night that couldn't get into the field. And he's just holding his dead limp son. And everybody just... And I think, Lord, if this doesn't happen right now, like this nine-year-old boy get raised from the dead, then anything that I've done and preached here, and if I touch his unclean body, and all these things are going through my head, I'm not even ready. Like, I don't feel like apostolic man of faith and power in the moment to raise the dead. I wasn't a doubter. I just didn't feel... Like, I'm going to run across the stage and raise this guy from the dead. I had more fear that he wouldn't be raised from the dead. And then the Holy Spirit whispers in the back of my mind, the intercessor and her prophetic word, that a dead nine-year-old boy would be raised from the dead in the Muslim world. That would give me favor to see revival in the nations. And we pray for the boy. In the first couple minutes, really, nothing's happening. And then I heard the Spirit of God. This is where people get offended and go crazy on media and the internet and YouTube. And I can't even tell you why, and I don't know why our focus needs to be on this anyways. But the Lord told me to slap him in the face three times. Yes, you're offended. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Me hearing God to slap a dead Muslim boy in the face three times and he's not raised from the dead. I'm in jail. There's a riot. I'm stoned. Unclean body. There's all kinds of laws going on here. And the Lord says, slap him. And I do. I slap him in the face three times. On the third time, his body kind of vibrates. His eyes roll back in his head and he's resurrected from the dead. At this point, I made a video, like a periscope, okay, live. I would have done Facebook live if they had it then. But I did periscope. I did a little video. And I end up, what do you do when the dead is raised? I, I didn't know. I ended up taking a selfie, like in the midst of 45 minutes of praise. 45 minutes of praise. I'm with the boy taking a selfie. What else do you do? Text my wife. Dead boy, just raised from the dead. Telling the world on Periscope, the dead were just raised. I'm in tears. Oh, look what's happening. And right after that, 45 minutes later, they said, Todd, there's another body. And I look over at the top of the stairs, and there's a body, just a dead guy at the top of the stairs that died earlier in the day of a massive heart attack. And they took me up on it, and they carried his body to the meeting, got him through the crowd, and got him up on the stage. I just laid his dead body. And we went over to pray for him, and he had rigomatosis kind of set in already. He had been dead that long. And I'm praying for him, and everybody else is praying for him. I'm hitting him on the chest, not doing CPR. And we're just saying, life, life, life. And by now, one of my team members who was from Bethel Church in Reading, he said, I'm not going to miss this one. And he gets out his cell phone. He said, just in case. And he makes a little video. And he starts recording for about two minutes. And the Spirit of God comes over me and he says, you know, another act of faith on the body is kind of required here. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, just grab his arm and just start like banging it up and down, you know, just you, you grab his arm and rigamatorsa, you know, so you got to the joint and you're moving his arm up and down. This one's on tape, you know, film. I'm going to play it in a minute, the video. And the man is raised from the dead. Second resurrection. Now, we're in praise again, as you would be, but do you want to know what my mindset was? Honestly? 
I just tell you my mindset? When they told me there was another body to pray for, my mind was, God, we can't have another resurrection. I can hear all my heresy hunter friends and all my people, and even those that know and love me, they're going to be like, come on, Todd. It would have been one thing to believe one, but you're going to claim two in one meeting. You know, that was my mindset. I actually found myself thinking that would be too many resurrections from the dead in one meeting. Well, that's when they told me there was a third body which they had put up on the stage. And this was the only man that remembered before he died, a spirit appeared to him, spirit of death, and said, I'm going to kill you. And the demon struck him and he hemorrhaged and died, widowmaker heart attack. They ended up throwing his body up on the stage. And my missions director went over to check his pulse because we had already prayed for two people to be raised from the dead and his body was just laying there. He was resurrected in the glory without any official prayer for him to be raised from the dead. Raised from the dead, a third, three resurrections from the dead in one meeting. Now, I've never been in a meeting where they carried in three bodies to get prayer like it was the normal thing. And God raised three people from the dead. Opened a tremendous door for us to see revival in the Muslim world. We just got back six weeks ago now, I think, a month ago. Sean, you were there. One of the pastors here in the church over the school of ministry on our last mission to Pakistan. And we saw an amazing release of God's power and, and harvest and glory. There were no resurrections from the dead. But just these two missions now to Pakistan, we've seen over 650,054 salvations. 650,054 Muslims. Our missions director has been there 22 times. And they're preparing the ground right now for our next mission to Pakistan, which could reach crowds of upwards of a million people, a service. And I just had one of my associates in Los Angeles just finished a 10-day miracle revival crusade outreach in Pakistan. We've opened the door, and about three others that are with our ministry are going into Pakistan because God's giving us this nation. 98% Muslim. And we have open doors to be able to go into the nation now and hold gatherings of 100,000, 500,000, 1 million. We're going to be going into Lahore, Pakistan, Quetta, Pakistan. We literally on this last mission, I mean, you lose track of the thousands that are being touched and healed. Many of those miracles happen when our team prays. Sometimes they're praying for the sick an hour or two hours before I get there. And I get there and they said, yeah, tumors are falling off in the blind sea and the deaf here and demons are coming out. I remember this one boy crippled from birth. Both of his legs were turned around backwards. So his feet pointed out the other end. His legs were literally twisted, could never stand on them, could never walk, could never. And his feet born this way were twisted totally around the other way. Power of God came on him and both feet straightened right out. He stood, he walked, he ran for the first time. I remember one meeting where they brought about 15, 20 deaf mutes. And literally in about five minutes, 11 deaf mutes heard and spoke for the first time. And one of the most outstanding miracles that I may have ever seen is two children that didn't even have ears. Like not even have like holes where you should have your ear hole. No eardrum, nothing, no parts. And of course you're deaf when you have no ears. 
And I watched the power of God come over these two children. They were maybe, you know, 10, 12 years old. And God restored their hearing. They could totally hear and speak. And they still didn't have ears. Just try to figure that one out. Without any ears or ear hole, being deaf and mute, and you test them before they get prayer, and you, you know, interview the family, they've never heard, they've never spoke, and now they're fully hearing and fully speaking, and they still don't have ears. I mean, it was an outstanding miracle. We saw miracles like that. Uh, the first day we got to Pakistan, they had us on the streets, and before lunchtime, we had seven paralyzed people healed. Before lunchtime, the first day, walking the streets in Pakistan, we were going into uh, homes, into the Pakistani homes, very small. I mean, what you might call your living room. And they could have up to 10 people living in one home. And they would have the cripples and, and people upstairs, and they'd be really sick. And you'd have to go down these small alleyways. It kind of was like an Iraq or an Afghanistan. You, you have to go down these small, into these little Pakistani homes. And they would just be so overjoyed that you would come and pray for them. They had my team, all of us, out on the street before lunchtime. And we went into these different places and just prayed in people's homes, walked through the streets. You could have up to 500 people just following you on the streets, especially the children. And we were so done and exhausted, we were going to go back to the uh, vehicles, take us back to the hotel. And they said, one more, one more, one more. And we just kept going around these corners and one more, one more. We get up to the busy street and there's a little church on the corner. And by now there's hundreds of people gathered outside. And they said, we just want you to come inside because there's a man that died today, early this morning. And they got his body inside the church at the altar waiting for you. And, and my first thought was, when did the new standard of what they call normal like the expectation is we're not even lunchtime the first day in Pakistan and they've got my team going into a church to pray for a body to be raised from the dead. I get inside the church. There might have been 200 people in there on the floor, mostly women. He, he passed that morning at about 6 a.m. and we start praying for this guy. Now, mid-prayer, he's not being raised from the dead. Mid-prayer, the Spirit of God speaks to me and says, ask them a question. And the question was, hey, who was this guy? And you know, what happened? And I said, well, he's 54 years old. He died of cancer suddenly this morning, but he was the father of our church. And that's when the Lord said, listen, he doesn't want to come back. Most Christians, once they die and go to heaven, don't want to come back. It's so hard to get a Christian raised from the dead. And I actually said that to the people. The whole church went into jubilant rejoicing. And they thought, well, you know, at least we tried. That's what we learned two years ago when you came the last time and three people were raised from the dead is we weren't going to miss an opportunity to at least pray faith to raise the dead or die trying. And I was just so amazed that they were in such faith. We've now had, through the ministry on the ground in Pakistan, five resurrections from the dead. They just believe all things are possible. They have faith. Or at least die trying. You know, you know, here's the body. Come on in and pray. And then we hear from heaven. Okay, it's settled. But we're going to go after all things are possible. That was our opening, you know, morning in Pakistan. But seven people paralyzed were healed before lunch. And then we got back. We got to go to a leper colony. Pray for all the lepers. I think I might have been more impacted by going to the leper colony and praying for the lepers by the fact that one of the women that opened the leper colony or the hospital was like a, a, a saint, like Saint Teresa or something, you know, Saint 
Mary, I don't remember what her name was, but they dedicated this leper hospital to this woman because she had such love and compassion for the lepers and the outcasts that she left everything that she had, sold all that she had, and opened this leper hospital and moved in with the lepers until she died. 40 years with the lepers, loving them and their wounds and blessing them until she died. And at that time, I thought, Lord, even if we were to reach you know, a million people tonight, this woman might have a bigger reward in heaven than I do. Because she gave up everything to love the most ugly leprosy body parts still. They're discovering cases. There was people in the hospital just six weeks. We discovered leprosy. One woman I prayed for 25 years. She was albino white with leprosy. Several of the people with leprosy, you know, would just weep and weep and weep. And you know what they wept about? The fact that they knew we had come from Canada and all over the world from America and that we went out of our way with all the security concerns and actually came and took time to visit them and love them and pray for them and touch them and hug them. Even if they didn't get healed or saved. They said, thank you. They were so overjoyed in tears that we would even come to where they live because nobody else would come. Their families wouldn't come. Because the caste system and their lepers walked away for decades in this leper hospital. Overjoyed that we would just come and show a little love, a little time, a little mercy, a little compassion. And I wanted to share that tonight because this is where it all started for me. God launched us into our mission to Pakistan here out of Zion, and you were good friends and good partners. Can we give the Lord a mighty shout that you share together in that harvest? So the nine-year-old boy being raised from the dead, signpost of a new season of revival and harvest, we've went on over the last 24 months to see over 750,000 decisions for Christ just the last two years. This is the fruit of what we call kingdom encounters. All this talk about angels, visions, dreams, the reality of the supernatural, soaking. What does it all end up producing? Two point five million decisions for Christ now. Come on, rejoice in harvest. Over two point five million. I didn't have $500, 22 years old. Here my Lord send me. Never dreamed there would be days where we could see up to a million souls reached with the gospel of meeting. That's what we're contending for. Next year we'll pass a million souls in Pakistan. My prayer is like Sean. He got so wrecked. It's hard to come back to normal. That you'd pray about one of our upcoming missions this year, 2018. Got one to Mexico in May. A little bit more safe, cost effective. Maybe not so much terrorism, but you know, you got some drug cartel violence. But we do two stadium crusades in and around Mexico City. That'll be in May. A lot of young people in their 20s. You don't have to be. You can be 80. But we do tend to have a lot of younger people that come and teenagers. It's a great trip for them. 
I've taken up to 100 teenagers, 13 to 18, to Mexico. And they get so wrecked by the time we're done. Streets every day and hospitals and open air preaching and miracle crusades at night. And they always are the ones that God uses the most. My daughter was 15 last year or a year before 15. And she wept and wept and wept to 1, 2 in the morning because every day the Lord used her hands to get cripples out of wheelchairs. You never come back from that. You can't come back from the dead being raised. Next year, our big mission will be Madagascar, Africa, one of the most unreached islands in the world. Madagascar, Africa. You barely even hear about it. Maybe some tourist stuff, lemurs. Madagascar is 53% of the population is under 15 years old. We want to talk about a whole nation, 25 million people. 15 years old, 53%. Where did their moms and dads go? What's the number one death rate, you know, in addition to AIDS and all the other stuff? How many of you know that in the last two months, maybe you read something on the news or heard it, there was a plague that broke out in Madagascar, mysterious plague. They called it the Black Death. They said it was more contagious than the Black Death of the 17, 1800s in England. There were immediately 2,000 people that would die within 12 hours. They would get this Black Death, and you could be so sick within 12 hours if you didn't get the treatment, and you could die within the first 24 hours. So, And then the reports kind of, they got a little more contained, and now it's like, 485 new cases and you know maybe 100 cases a week right now but it kind of just broke out and they have a real practice in Madagascar it's a mixture of like it's only 3% Christian as far as what you would understand born again spirit filled Christianity 3% there's like Roman Catholic and then there's like a but you know Protestant but not evangelical in that sense 3% and most of the nation that are Roman Catholic or Protestant mix in the Maliese, I believe it's called, religion, which is the worship of the dead. And they literally worship the dead, keep the bodies for a few extra days in the house, set them up at the dinner table kind of deal, like a real day of the dead. And uh, they have these weird witchcraft practices that involve dead relatives, and they've really opened themselves up as a nation. Like this is on a governmental level. They bring in the witchcraft and the worshiping of the dead. They have opened a door for me to go next year and preach the gospel. I said, what, what's happening in Madagascar? They said, you will be the main event. There's nothing, you know, if you're not in tourism and coming for the great coral reef, the indigenous people are some of the most unreached people and need revival off the coast of East Africa, the fourth largest island. And we're going to go there next year and preach the gospel. Hallelujah. We're going to see a harvest of souls and a nation shaken with the glory and the power of God. And Uganda, Africa, and all these other African countries, 40 countries now in Africa. But it's a season. How many of you are ready to see harvest? Revival, harvest, America. Not just Africa, Pakistan. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that more tomorrow. I want to pray for people tonight. I want to pray for the reality of the supernatural. Now, this would be great if I had my book up here on the supernatural because I have one in the bookstore. You'll just have to look for it, the reality of the supernatural. 
But I want to pray tonight for that experience for a lot of people. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to really focus on the ministry of healing and miracles and impartation and signs and wonders. But I want to pray tonight for kingdom encounters. Meaning, I want to pray for everybody that's in the room and have prayer lines and have impartation, minister to everybody. And it doesn't mean in your encounter you can't get healed. And if you're here tonight, Friday night only, it doesn't mean we won't pray for your healing. But I really feel like there's an open heaven. God, let's activate our spiritual senses and release people to go deeper and higher. It might start with these kind of encounters and then end up in the harvest, in the fields, raising the dead, healing the sick. How many of you are hungry for a season of visitation? I love and am more passionate about, you know, talking about intimacy and the secret place and prayer, experiencing God than I am about anything else. It's kind of my number one message. If I'm not talking about the supernatural miracle signs and wonders and harvest, I'm talking about prayer and intimacy and the secret place. It surpasses my love for revival, stadiums, raising the dead, knowing and experiencing Holy Spirit. So I want to just kind of say this one thing tonight. I do have a bookstore. And my prayer tonight is if you get anything, you get my new book, The Secret Place, Experiencing the Intimacy with God You've Always Wanted. I would say this is the foundation to encountering kingdom. So I don't know how many of these I have in the bookstore. It's sold out. We had to reprint it. And it's probably been one of the most well-received books I've written. I do talk about the secret garden and the secret place of the stairs and all my teaching on come Holy Spirit and the blessings and benefits of the secret place and contemplative prayer, listening prayer, soaking prayer. What is soaking? Soaking for the purpose of revelation. Father's house. You will be blessed. And you'll have revival in your prayer life. And what a great time. You know, it's the holiday season. Who could you be a blessing to? So great endorsements. Bill Johnson endorsed this one. And that was, I've written seven books. I couldn't get Bill to get me an endorsement on anything. But this one. Rick Joyner, he's a great author, you know, and I went to Rick and I gave him a chapter or two and I said, I would like you to endorse my book. And he said, great, but he read the first two chapters. He said, this is good, but I need to read a little more. And I know you're a spiritual son and, you know, I, I said, well, here's two more chapters. And he read it and he said, yeah, I need to have a little bit more like the whole book. I won't put my name on something as an author if I don't believe it's well written from a content, not just a content, revelation, anointing, but it needs to be written well enough. You know, I do too many writing seminars to put my name on just something. So I need to read the whole thing beginning to end. And he did. And I got an endorsement and he said, I was more blown away by how much better it was than I thought it would be. (laughs) Not just from how well written, but even the content. And so, you know, Rick Joyner, Sean Bolt's got a great endorsements in there. I think the message itself is enough. So I want to give away this copy. Do you have a copy? Yeah, I'd love to give you guys a copy of The Secret Place. And I have those in the bookstore, and I'd love it all of you to go out and get one tonight. Today I got to announce before I came to the meeting 
this took me 17 years to write that one book because it's my life's message. And the Lord told me I couldn't put it out until I lived it. So he would not let me write that book for 17 years. And then just today, I was able to announce that I have a new study guide prayer journal workbook that's actually coming out. Three, it's 272 pages of mentoring and discipleship in prayer every day, like a devotional. You can write down what you hear, the encounters you have in the secret place. But it's actually a, a very intensive, interactive study guide workbook. And I put in two bonus chapters that aren't in the secret place book, one on sonship, one on intimacy. And then it mentors everybody on the secret place. So that's kind of just announced today. People can order it. But what I'm most excited about is in January, I'm going to announce an eight-week mentoring discipleship where I'm going to take people into the secret place every week for eight weeks. It's going to be an online media type experience, a closed group. But I'm going to do personally mentoring and taking people through the secret place, through the study guide, the journal, through the book, and then lead prayer gatherings where we're going to soak and go into heaven together and have encounters together. And I'm going to do that with people from all over the world. So we're going to announce that in the new year. And uh, just the idea we do training for the supernatural, we do training for healing, we do, you know, all the internship stuff. But I think the church is lacking encountering kingdom. What real communion and what real prayer and what real intimacy is. So if I said anything about what we have in the bookstore, I'd say, you know, get the secret place if you don't have a copy. And Leslie will be back there and uh, all the other stuff is back there. The reality, the supernatural book which is all my teaching on the kind of stuff that I talked about today. So you do have a copy. Yeah, bring me that real quick. I'll just, who'd like to have the reality? This is two books, guys. Supernatural Encounters, Angels, Visions, Dreams, Throne Room, all that great stuff packed in here. You'd like to have this? Merry Christmas. There you go. God bless you. So give the Lord a mighty shout for that. I'm going to pray for people, Pastor Jim. And you wanted me to give the mic back for a minute, did you? Pastor Sean? Um, Sean, you, you got pretty wrecked, didn't you? I'm sure you've shared what you experienced in Pakistan a little bit. or Yeah. Um, do we still have that video, Todd? Do we still have the video of the boy? Can we show that? Can we play that? So what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to have ushers. You guys can come forward right now. We're going to do an offering for Todd. And uh, while you guys are making your checks payable to Zion, this is all counted separately, we'll play the video just so you guys can get a feel for, like, what the culture there is like. When I say culture, I mean, like, they were doing a crusade. I remember the third night of this this year, I, I shared a couple times. I mean, people were crowd surfing to get to this stage. And, you know, like, if any of you, you know, or maybe – WWE fans or Royal Rumble and things like that. Like, you know, maybe some of you have been in bar fights. You haven't been as saved as you are right now. Well, the environment on that stage was unlike any, it was the most chaotic experience I've ever been a part of. Like, it was almost like there wasn't a reason for God to say, like, let things be done in, in, in order until you've been in that environment. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, anyway, uh, so uh, let's just play a clip because this will probably give you a good picture. It's, it's a couple minutes long. So uh, you can make checks payable to Zion again just to prepare your offering. All this goes to Todd. And I will say this too, as these guys are getting that video ready. Is is that, um, you know, my experience, some of you have heard me share about it since I got back, but, uh, you know, one thing I haven't shared is that Todd and his ministry, they pay for all of it. So, so some people like, hey, where does this money go? Like, I was there. They don't take any offerings. 
the entire time that they're there, and they pay for 100% of it. They don't even put burden on the local churches. They really come to pay for all of it. So, man, when you talk about this, you know, giving to giving to a ministry or giving to a leader, where does the money go? Man, it all goes year round. They they do offerings, and it all goes when they when they bring it to the nations to to these environments. So, is it possible to play it? Give me a thumbs up if we're playing or.
So you don't need much endorsement for me. So uh, I'm going to have the, the ushers come on forward. And guys, go ahead and just begin to pass the plates around. Uh, and you can make checks payable to Zion again. Or you can put money in an envelope and the card in front of you. All this, this is all counted separately. So this all goes towards Todd for the weekend. Um, man, so good. So I mean, who wants some of that anointing on their life? Like, who wants more of that, you know? I remember the third night, Todd, do you remember uh, that uh, they were yelling at us that we couldn't bring any more people on the stage, you know, just because there was such hunger for people to get on it that, they, that it would collapse? So does that make sense? Like there were so many people on the stage uh, that we weren't allowed to bring any more people on it. And you know what, that, that's really exciting. That sounds like a great meeting. But what it really speaks to me is just that, man, how much hunger there is for this in the world. How much hunger there is. Does this make sense? Like, it's not about having a great meeting. It's about, it's about Jesus actually being fed to the nations, about Jesus being released. And so, you know, I love what, what, uh, what Todd was sharing tonight about, about the intimacy and the secret place, man, is what leads all that stuff. And, and so... So thank you guys for giving this this weekend. Tomorrow morning, uh, we'll have a ten o'clock meeting. Then tomorrow night at six, and so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass this back over to Todd as the plates are uh, are getting finished up here, and and let him uh, kind of lead us here for the rest of the time. Can you give the Lord a mighty shout? You don't come back from that. I mean, I've watched the the video highlight you know, a hundred times, and I still get in tears, and I, it brings me back, and that boy was raised from the dead, and, and you see the hunger, the Muslims experiencing encountering God, that was our first mission, and this last mission was even more powerful, and thousands and thousands coming to know Christ, and the hunger there literally was about 35,000 people on the final service trying to get up on the stage on both sides. They were climbing up the back of the platform. We had not one but three giant, like you saw in the video, we had three platforms, three stages. One could hold 500 people just in the choir on one stage. That's how we had three. And we were on the middle stage. And when the people come up to get prayer, we open up one side, and they can come up, get prayer, or give a testimony, and then go. But both sides were so overwhelmed, the people were under the stage trying to climb up, and push their way up through under the stage. You could, heal, you could feel the stage moving. And they were on the back, climbing up the metal scaffolding, and then there was probably 35,000 people between both sides, all pushing you know, you're preaching, and, you know, we didn't even mention this, but every day as I'm preaching, there's um, ambulances with their sirens, and they're bringing the sick. As you're preaching, you see the ambulance come into the crowd, and they drop the sick off. And uh, they, the ambulance goes out, comes back in. You're preaching. You see the ambulance coming. The desperation and the hunger is unlike anything I've ever experienced. When they say they were crowd surfing, they literally are pushing the children up onto the stage in the hopes that you might touch them. It gets so dangerous, we have to pull our team off the ground and have them up on the stage. You can't go down there because the people will push and grab. And When it comes time for me to leave the meeting, I have to make a secret 
like one minute you see me and I'm praying and I'm preaching. And then when I'm done, they, I can't give any indication that I'm done. I have to just run with my security off the stage, jump in the vehicle and exit. So, you know, most of the time we leave the team behind and <laughs> they're all still there praying. It's a great distraction for me to get out. And then the team has to go and uh, trying to hold back the crowds by the final day because they just want to push and they get, grab the bus. I didn't tell my team all the details, but the second day we were preaching, at, by about 9 o'clock the field was pretty empty still. They had to empty out over 80,000 people because there was a bomb threat. On the first day, we weren't even able to set up until within hours of the meeting. We, re, we needed two and a half days to set up. But the day I flew into Pakistan, the Pakistani government, in fear of uprisings, 3,000 protesters that were blocking so we couldn't get into the field, they took the permit and they canceled the crusade. And people don't know, we spend upwards, you know, just the team, you, you know, we had a team of 29, I think, 24, and then our staff and flights and food and hotel and what we invest in these kind of crusades can be upwards of $100,000 or more. And then you can invest up to 100000 200000 in travel and other expenses. So we could be $200,000, $250,000 in. And to have the government just say, hey, we're done. You're not preaching. We don't care. You're here. We didn't even get visas to get into the country to the last day, 30 minutes after the embassy closed. The final day you could even get the visa. After months of trying, we kind of gave up that we wouldn't even be able to get our team to Pakistan. And they gave us the visa on the Friday, 30 minutes after the consulate closed because of the political people in Pakistan didn't want us to bring a team of that many people. Nobody's ever brought a team of 24, it was 29 at one point, Americans into Pakistan. And so that was part of the reason. But it was a governmental, political, we had death threats from one of the bishops, one of the churches that was caught with all the evidence giving death threats to one of our key team members. We had two black Taliban, ISIS Taliban members killed just weeks before we went to Pakistan. They uncovered a terrorist operation. They were planning several bombings of religious sites in Karachi and the CID, CIA of Pakistan, CID went in and two black Taliban operatives were killed and uh, they were tracking and following our missions director when he was in Pakistan. He was arrested and put in jail for his own safety until we could uncover this. And two people end up getting killed. Well, on the final day of this meeting in Pakistan, they nearly, the police chief tried to shut down the service because he said there's going to be a, a Shia Muslim, uh, you know, for 40 days in the streets. And they're going to be like cutting themselves and like some morbid, they're going to have, you know, razor blades and they're going to be lashing themselves, you know, 39 times to bleed out into the streets as a demonstration with their prophet, not Muhammad, but Prophet Ali. It was the Shia Muslims versus the Sunni Muslims and they thought it was too dangerous for us to have a meeting. And they said literally there'll be thousands in the streets, there'll be pools of blood and riots and people could die and we don't think it's safe for you to be out here preaching. So every single day there was opposition to try to shut down and cancel the crusade. We had $40,000 embezzled. That man's in prison for raping two women. 
I mean, I could go on and on and on with the spiritual warfare that people don't even know about. Our, our armed security didn't show up until the last minute of the last day. We had 4,000 people with, you know, guns. And you really need to have all that. You got heaven, you got prayer, you got the angels, but we, we got to have the best security. The first crusade, this one, was when I had the snipers on the roof. We didn't have to have that this time, but we had snipers on the roof. All kinds of dynamics you can hardly imagine when you go into these kind of countries to preach the gospel. And now we have favor. I didn't tell you this story, and I want to end with this. This might have been the most amazing God thing. After struggling with the government and the passports and the threats and the police chief and the, the, Muslim, or the bishop putting out a death threat, the jealousy amongst other churches trying to shut us down, I had a meeting with about 10 Muslim enums that came to our hotel. And these were the kind of uh, leaders of mosques of thousands. And they were looked at as the most educated scholarly of scholarly, meaning theologians that you would go to, you know, for your theology if you were a Muslim. And the other leaders would look to them. They were like in the top. Even the government kind of respected and feared them. A lot of what would happen, say, even like a, a terrorist act or a suicide bombing, if the family was going to get money, you know, after somebody would, would commit an act of terror, if these guys looked at it negatively or didn't put their blessing on it, they would be afraid they would lose their place in heaven and therefore they wouldn't have the blessing. So they carry that much weight. Um, it's kind of like a, a real Muslim doesn't want to be killed by a woman because then they lose their place uh, in eternity with their thousand virgins or whatever if you're killed by a woman. So, you know, when the women would go to the battlefields in Iraq, the men would run. Because if a woman kills you as a soldier, you lose the, the reward of heaven kind of deal. So there's all kinds of things. But these guys came to my hotel, and it's never been done, to meet with me, to hear my belief, and to present theirs. So I felt like Paul the Apostle a little bit when he got to go to Rome and preach to the emperor. They, they, they wanted to be heard what they believe, and the factions within the Muslim, what they believe differently. And this is how I come to understand they don't believe in or accept that there was even a man that went to the cross. There was no cross. We believe in Jesus, prophet, teacher, but we don't believe he died. He didn't, there was no need for him to suffer and die on the cross. So I heard all of them, and then they said, what do you believe? And I freely was able to preach the gospel to them. And then they said, we want to put out word publicly and officially that anytime you come to Pakistan, we as a Muslim brotherhood are giving you the green light to hold prayer gatherings and festivals throughout Pakistan. And if the church won't bless you and accept you, we do. And it was really kind of a strategic moment. I don't know. Were you in on that lunch, that meeting we had with them? And... Um, Later, two of them showed up on the final service to make a public appearance, which just if, the, if they show up, this is like the president showing, you know, everybody in the nation that was a Muslim would know who they were. So for them to be on my platform is just huge, you know, and the, and the backlash or repercussions of that could be huge. But their weight was so much so as religious scholars that they said, you wouldn't even need the security that you have if people know that we're standing with what you're doing because that's how much weight they have even amongst the government 
So they said, next time you come to Pakistan, you call us and you work with us and we'll have your permits put through and your visas put through and you will have no more problems. I posted a picture. I posted it on my Instagram, you know, on social media. And, you know, um, I heard from a lot of people all over the world. They said, man, nothing like that is. It was a very diplomatic type meeting. It was very, you know, they wanted to be heard and they wanted, we got to be heard. And, you know, of course, we really rallied around the idea that we loved the people. We weren't us versus them, America versus Pakistan, Muslims versus Christians. We really did away with that idea. And that's what they wanted us to know, that we're not all trying to blow you up. And that's important for the Muslim world to host people from America because of the media and all the stuff. And we really don't want to kill you. That's kind of in a nutshell. And they said, we have some differences about what you believe and we believe, but if you're here to believe in and pray for healing, we accept that. And that's kind of what we made... The message was healing for the people in Pakistan. And now we have a, a ministry, a TV ministry, you know, in Pakistan, Anwar, that's reached out to us multiple times to work with us for our next mission where we could easily gather a million people and see a harvest and revival in the Muslim world. So who will pray for us as we put together the details for our next mission to Pakistan? We're talking about going after the transformation of a nation, not just one meeting. And uh, we're, we're going to believe God, you know, and pray for our mission director, Darcy Cummer. He was just in Malawi for two months, but he spent 22 trips to Pakistan already. And he could spend up to two months of time in Pakistan, preaching and ministering. And the last time he was there, he got poisoned by ISIS. And was in the hospital for like 10 days, nearly died because they put poison in his chai tea. And uh, he barely survived that. And, uh, you know, and that's when the two black Taliban were trailing him. And they went in and did an, an uncovery of, a, of an operation. And two people were killed. But I think he's the real hero. If you've ever seen him on Facebook or social media, just say, hey, thanks for all that you do for the kingdom. These no-name, nameless, faceless people that lay their life down for months every year to go places most of us would never go and to work really hard. This guy's a wild man, rodeo clown. That was his background, rodeo clown. And then at 50 years old almost, he decides to give up everything and spend three, four months a year in countries like Africa and Pakistan setting up crusades for evangelists like me and Charlie Champ and others. And uh, we did a project, Feed Malawi, and fed 200,000 kids. And this guy made it happen. 60, 70, 80 hours a week without any fanfare, without any support. And uh, he's just a mighty hero for God. And so I want to give a shout out to him and Darcy Cummer and Blazing Faith Ministries uh, for those that are watching the broadcast live. Can we do that? Just give the Lord a mighty shout. Thank you for the heroes, God. Thank you for the laid down lovers. I mean, we come in with the team and we preach and we may be in and out within seven days. And there's a lot of great rewards, but it's these guys that serve tirelessly and endlessly over and over to make these missions happen. And so don't get the idea that we could do it without the generous support of our friends and partners. That's why everything that you sow and invest, you are the last ministry and the partner ministry for what you just saw tonight was Zion Church when I was here two years ago. So to be able to come back and share now 
the fullness of what God is doing in revival in Pakistan is awesome. And so thank you for being a friend and thank you for being a partner and giving and sowing. Give the Lord a mighty shout. Pray for fruit that remains. Fruit that remains. My assistant, Leslie, she's from Ohio. And uh, it was her first missions trip. And by the way, it was here at Zion that you heard me preach and found out we had a ministry school. Came to our ministry school and uh, went on to be a staff and now family lives with my wife and I. And uh, Leslie decided of all the missions she could ever do that her first mission would be Pakistan. And she were there too. So give the Lord a mighty shout that good seeds come out of Ohio. Leslie's a little bit more quiet and shy, so I always like to be sure that we make sure everybody knows who she is and kind of embarrass them if I can, and then later I get kicked in the head with a shoe or something, but she's responsible for all that good eating today. It melts too, hallelujah, so praise God, and um, whew, man, I feel a little drunken glory coming into the room now. There we go. Thank you, Lord, for that. Holy and joy at the same time. How many of you take the presence of God with holy and joy at the same time? You see how ordinary we all are? I think I'm pretty unassuming. But it's got to be the beard. I think that's what gave me all my Pakistanian favor with the, the Muslim enums. They were quite jealous, honestly, that my beard was a little bit more epic and a little bit more magnificent than theirs. Because in Pakistan, the length of your beard determines your spirituality. It really is a big... Just like in Africa, you know, the more rich, you know, the heavier and bigger you are is the more money and rich you are. So, if only that was true. <laughs> glory, 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 glory. Go ahead and lift your hands up for a moment. We're going to pray. For kingdom encounters. Then just overflow tomorrow morning. We'll do miracles and healing and training and impartation. Bring the sick. But Lord, we pray tonight that we would encounter and experience heaven without limits, without limitation. That we would expect and pray to go deeper and higher. Keep coming, Holy Spirit. Let there be a release even in the atmosphere here the city, the region, where we would have this free access, ascending and descending the secret place of the stairs without limitation. God, that you would break down the mindsets and the things that would oppose us from believing that all things are possible. That God, we're going to be the people of the abundance of visions and revelations. Abundance of miracles and healings, abundance of salvation. That you're going to take the roof off and that we're positioning ourselves tonight to experience the intimacy with God we need, that we've always wanted. God, you're raising up a modern day generation of men and women that will walk with you like Adam and Enoch. God, I pray that the reality of the supernatural, the reality of heaven would be in this place. So much so, we would just, as a culture, already of prosperity and signs and wonders, God, I pray that we would have this Holy Ghost growing desire, aching and longing to experience and encounter heaven in ways we never have before.
Lord, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We want to see and taste and hear and feel, smell and discern all that heaven offers. We know that you're in this place, but Holy Spirit, come and begin to reveal Jesus in ways we've never seen Jesus. Let's dare to pray that prayer. Holy Spirit, show me Jesus in ways that I've never seen Jesus. Lord, I want to know and see. That's what Paul the Apostle said, to know him. The power of his resurrection. That's what I want to know, him and the power of his resurrection. You don't have to pray for the fellowship of his sufferings. You're going to know that too. If you're going to be conformed into the image, you're not going to be able to have the greater glory without suffering. That's a given. But Lord, I want to be that close and that intimate that you trust me with that cup. To know you in the power of your resurrection. In this lifetime. To be filled with all the fullness of God. So Lord, we are expecting that we can receive from heaven today. That we're going to hear, that we're going to see, that we're going to taste, we're going to smell, we're going to touch things we've never encountered before. And it's not going to stop. That there's going to be a release of the abundance of supernatural dreams and visions and revelations. God, I pray abundance. That people would get so many words of knowledge, they wouldn't know what to do with it. So many uh, revelatory things, they wouldn't know what to do with it. So much coming to them from revelation and the spirit of knowledge, they wouldn't know what to do with it all. All the books that would be released and all the creative ideas that would be released. Uh, Lord, we need creativity. We need confirming vision, revelation, and direction. I'm glad we went the direction we went tonight, people, because I was going to come in here and bring a prophetic word that I have for 2018, which I'm going to get to at some point over the weekend, about breakout favor. I really received a suddenly unexpected visitation from heaven, because I wasn't thinking or praying about 2018 or any other year, and God just came and visited me like on a Wednesday night at 11 o'clock at night, and said, here's what I'm going to do in 2018. And I couldn't write it down fast enough. And I hope to bring that word at some point. But right now, we're expecting heaven. I'm going to pray for people that are just hungry. Maybe I need to pray for hunger. That might be what happens to you tonight. You're getting provoked and stirred, and the invitation challenged to go higher, to get out of your stagnant. You know, we can get stagnant. The longer we're saved sometimes, the more saved we need. The longer we stay churched in, in, in America, you might need a wild mission like Pakistan just to get you unstuck. I realize that the, the, the more I'm saved and mature in knowledge, the harder it is to keep the fire. When I got saved in my drug dealer's trailer, I was radical. The fire of the zeal, taking it to the streets all the time. I mean, you know, people had to calm me down. Because I was so wild and so radical. 
And then I thought the more mature I get and the more churched I get, the more unradical and the, and the less I do the kingdom. And the only kingdom that we end up doing is the kingdom in church where we're safe on the ministry team. How many are just ready for God to send out? Listen to what I saw in the Spirit, and I don't have time to process it all, but I'm going to throw it out there. One thing I saw in worship when I came in tonight and I sat down is I saw like blue bombers, like jets, but they were blue bombers. I don't even know what that means. But I saw jets taking off, and I felt like the Lord was saying, I'm sending out. You know the word sending laborers into the harvest? Sending means forcing or thrusting thrusting out into the fields, laborers and harvesters, burning ones, but they were like bombers. And they were taking off from Columbus. So it was like the Lord was saying, as a hub city, I'm going to release out these burning ones, these harvesters. I'm going to thrust them and force them out into the fields. And the city will be known as a sending city of harvesters and laborers, but specifically, it was like, I, I thought, Lord, those are blue bombers, whatever that means, and they were being sent out, and I saw the thrusters of the jets, and I thought of Columbus as a hub and as a city, how they would force and thrust out as a great sending, like an apostolic mission sending base as a city, sending out the harvesters. So, Lord, there's a new call coming, a redemptive call coming to Ohio, to Columbus, for sending out the Lord of the harvest, sending laborers and harvesters into the field that are saying, here, my Lord, send me. 2018 is going to be the year of God restoring the office of the evangelist and raising up power evangelists. And I feel like Columbus will not be lacking in their role in the power evangelists being raised up, not just the apostles and prophets. I'm telling you right now, there's going to be a revival and a restoration of honor, recognition, receiving, and raising up power evangelists. I think 10, 15 years of conference ministry with an overemphasis on the apostolic and the prophetic, we've lost the evangelist, the power evangelist. And at one time in the late 80s, 90s, the evangelist was the faith, power, signs, wonders, television, the evangelist. We've lost that. And I'm telling you, I think, you know, ministries like Billy Graham entering into their hundredth year won't have long before they graduate to their full reward. Reinhard Bonnke just passing the torch, passing the baton on his farewell crusade in Africa. I thought, Lord, things are not the way that they were 10, 15 years ago. We don't have stadium ministries in America the way we used to. But I'm telling you, there's going to be a revival mantle that comes again on America where God's going to raise up power evangelists that will fill the arenas, fields, and stadiums. We tasted it. I saw that happen to a, you know, a, a degree in Florida, in Lakeland, Florida in 2008. The arenas, the stadiums, the fields. The Lord said, we're going to see another wave where there's going to be mantling for those that are saying, God, here my send me to America. America may have become the greatest nation in need of missionaries. America may have become the greatest mission field. More millions that need to be saved here, because there's nowhere I can think of in America where thousands are being saved. It's not like it is in Pakistan. 
in Southeast Asia, in Africa, where hundreds of thousands and millions are being saved. You can have a gathering in Nigeria of a million people. You can have gatherings in Pakistan. You can have gatherings in India. I can have gatherings in, in these countries, and you could barely get to tens of thousands for a day to just pray in a stadium in America, and not without six months to a whole year of administration and a million dollars just to be able to get people to pray. That's awesome, but we need more. There is a stadium revival anointing, I believe, that is in Columbus, that is in Ohio. And that this is going to be ascending the laborers and the harvesters. And if there was going to be a stadium revival movement, it's not going to happen without all of Ohio ablaze. So I'm telling you right now, one of the prophetic words that not just me and my team, but a lot of people are getting is 2018 is the year of the evangelist. 2018 is the year of the power evangelist. And that God's going to bring the fulfillment of a lot of unfulfilled visions and dreams that have been coming for 40 years, a whole generation, that there would be a nameless, faceless generation of men and women that would fill the stadiums and the arenas and the fields in America. And I'm telling you right now, it is so prophetic that ministries like Reinhard Bonnke are are doing the passing of the baton because revival that way as we knew it. The generals, the Oral Roberts, those who were filling the arenas, Billy Graham, God's passing it now and multiplying that anointing by a thousand fold and he's giving an invitation to people that want Revival Harvest America. Listen, I so believe it's true. I've rented three stadiums this year in faith in 2018. My first one will be in um, upstate New York. We are mobilizing a baseball stadium, stadium crusade in New York in August, and also organizing right now um, meetings that could happen in Houston, Los Angeles, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. We called Revival Harvest America Crusades because I am convinced that the anointing and the mantle for stadiums and harvests is upon us now. But we need to be intentional and live like it. How many feel an invitation or you believe your children's children should be in that legacy of revival? That we could pray an impartation of harvest power. I just finished a school, harvest power of evangelism, raising up evangelists. And the Lord's been speaking to us about it's time for harvest power to come back to America. So in addition to all the crusades we're going to do around the world, Madagascar, Mexico, Pakistan, I've added three crusades and may add a fourth to America. These will be soul-winning evangelistic, taking it to the streets, altar calls every night, preaching the gospel the way we preach it in Pakistan, but doing it in America. And I'm not waiting for churches to get on board and ministries to get on board. I'll take the 1,000-seat venue, the 3,000-seat venue. We're going to pour all our partners and pour all our money into going after key cities and regions for Harvest America. So I'm going to pray for people tonight, and I feel like that's part of the prophetic word that's going to be released, is many of you as intercessors already are now praying for the next generation, and they're going to walk in this mantle, not just for evangelism and missions, but literally for stadiums. There's going to be a movement. And it's happening already, and it's not a new word. People have been prophesying, but I feel like it's a fulfilled manifest word. I grabbed a hold of it when I was 22 years old. I said, God, I grabbed the nations, I grabbed harvest, I grabbed power evangelism, signs of what, and I've been doing it ever since. But now I'm telling you, there are so many other people talking about the stadium anointing. Who, who wants it? I, I mean, be honest about it. Not that you have to have it, but if the Lord was giving 
grace for arenas and stadiums in the fields, the open fields, who would take it? I mean, how much do we really want it? Let the weight of it. Lord, I want it. I want to be a part of the great harvest, the great awakening in America. Literally, I know people right now that have a vision for the stadiums and arenas in Australia, the, the stadiums and the arenas in Europe. I'm watching people I know that are just in their 20s and their early 30s and they're filling arenas and stadiums. They're mobilizing for stadium events and arenas. I said, God, I've never been so encouraged that you're raising up a generation of men and women. This is the shift time. I really believe. You watch how things are going to begin to happen and break out. We've recognized Jerusalem. How about that? The capital. Man, there are so many promises being fulfilled. It's unbelievable. You don't think heaven's going to move on that? Not just the economy. There are so many promises being fulfilled right now. Even CNN said, well, one the good thing we can say about Donald Trump is he's a keeper of his promises. I thought, did I just hear that? <laughs> Somebody's keeping their promises and working real hard to do a few more if he can cut through all the other red tape. I said, why can that guy get more done in nine months than guys that were, you know, eight years? I said, God, you were cutting through. Uh, heaven's got to be doing something supernatural. And I'm telling you right now, it's going to reflect on the rest of America having revival. I'm convinced of it. God's giving us a window right now to have a move of God and for us to see promises come to pass. And we better get to working and don't let demonic powers and assignments and oppositions, don't let some political spirit keep you from seeing unfulfilled kingdoms and visions and dreams come to pass. This is the time to go after it. If you sit back now, there may not be a window like this in eight years. This may be one last window to reestablish and get back stuff that we lost and make things better for future generations. Regardless of where you find yourself on your political thing, I'm telling you right now, heaven is doing something. And I'm a Canadian, so I don't even get a vote. But I sat back and I said, what if this man they call Trump was born just to recognize Jerusalem so we could move further into the end times? You think your end time theology can even happen without Jerusalem being the capital? We're in a better place right now to be able to see the fulfillment of prophecies just by the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We have just shifted over 70 years of stuff that's going to throw us into a lot of other stuff. Well, you know, the nations are going to rage. Well, how are you ever going to get to the fulfillment of all the biblical prophecy if the nations don't rage? I'm excited. I mean, nobody wants war and nobody wants nuclear war, but the end will not come and the Lord will not come if there's not going to be some kind of stuff. I'm convinced we're closer now than ever. I don't want war with North Korea either. I don't want nuclear war. I don't want one third of the earth to just, you know, die at once. But I'm telling you right now, if we were ever closer to some end time biblical prophecy coming to bat, we might be closer right now. You may actually see in your lifetime sooner than later. Not if, but when. And we need to pray, but at the same time, we don't get into the fear thing. We get under the, thank you, God, we're seeing heaven move. God is doing stuff. You 
going to find yourself on one end of the cross or the other. I'm going to be good news. I'm actually cheering on the idea that we have a government that's moving forward. You know what they, they said today? And I've got to pull it in after this, I promise. They, they said that, that America, you know, the military, did more to rout ISIS out of Iraq and Syria in a few months than the entire Obama administration. Just because Trump said, go ahead and do what you need to do. Put the power back in the hands of the people on the ground. And within months, we destroyed ISIS. Like, drove them out, took all the land back. ISIS is done. And I was like, could we not have just done that all those years ago? Like, I mean, surely we had the power. We could have just went in and blew them all up and got it all back. And one little decision, which was a major decision, has literally dealt with stuff we were just letting go on for years and years and years and years. I'm, I'm telling you right now, it's a mighty momentum for the kingdom of God. And this is a year of revival. Think about how the economy, and I know you know this, is higher than ever, and the Dow is higher than ever, and the money is higher than ever, and I don't think it's going to stop. You think you're going to wake up and have a bad morning where all of a sudden everything's just going to crash and come back down to normal. I don't, it's not. God has put us in a position right now that we can have like a Josiah King type anointing and, and have some years here of where heaven is going to give us the window we need to have the great awakening. That I don't think you would have been able to have three, four years ago. We will have a freedom holding back our freedoms and liberties that we can do stadium events and big mass revival in America. So give the Lord a mighty shout for that because somebody's going to get the anointing for it. And forgive me for my rant. My wife's quite the Trump person, by the way, outspoken, you know. So. And I said, well, I'm Canadian. I have the tattoo to prove it. And I didn't get a vote, so. I'm not democratic or republic. I'm just the kingdom of God. But I did see the prophecies. And I do see some things being fulfilled that encourages me. And I think it's God. It's not a man anyways. But God is really answering the prayers of the church right now. If there was ever a time where you could say, what time is it? You could say, it's a time for fulfillment of unfulfilled vision and dream. I'm telling you right now, answered prayer is accelerating down the pipeline. So think of all the unfulfilled destinies over the spirit in Columbus you've been waiting for for 10, 15, 20. We give up believing after 40 years of words about stadiums and nameless, faceless, and dead raising. And I'm like, hello, it's kind of here already. We're, we're in it. While the west of the church is talking about the coming revival, the coming resurrection of the dead revival. I'm like, there's people that are in it already. You, you need to catch up. So I'm going to pray for everybody that wants prayer, and uh, we're going to have a prayer line up here.